So we had a Washington sports radio announcer who just got fired for disparaging remarks he made about a Washington TV female sports journalist. He, he called her a Barbie. So Thousands of fans, friends, teammates, and coaches took to Twitter today after learning of Dwayne Haskins' death. Many of you hearing the news first from us here in the media. Adam Schefter is ESPN's senior NFL insider. He has 9.4 million followers on Twitter, and he was the first to break the news of Haskins' passing this morning. Unfortunately, it was done without taste, class, or any respect for the life Haskins lived. His initial tweet has since been deleted, but not before thousands saw it and retweeted it. Here is what it read in part. Dwayne Haskins, a standout at Ohio State before struggling to catch on with Washington and Pittsburgh in the NFL, died this morning when he got hit by a car in South Florida. I'm going to stop right there. A 24-year-old man with his entire life ahead of him has tragically lost his life. And Adam Schefter chose to speak of his, quote, struggles. It's disgraceful. And this uh, Why is it disgraceful? This man, Dwayne Haskins, had all the talent in the world, and he was a terrible roommate. He was a total bust as an NFL player. He put in very little effort. So I don't agree with this female journalist. Wild ride we call life. We all have our ups and downs, our greatest achievements, and the moments that will only make us stronger. It's how we learn from our low points and rise up to be better that truly define us. Haskins was doing just that. He was so proud of his progress, his recent signing with Pittsburgh, and was doing everything he could to make sure that his life was the absolute best it could be. As journalists, especially in news, we often have to report on death. But may we never be so cold to forget that the person we are talking about was a son or a daughter. Oh, so just a, a tissue of cliches there. I mean, Dwayne Haskins did struggle in the NFL. He struggled in life, and his recklessness is why he died so early. Right, this this news story Post. was written by Nikki Jabala. Don Geronimo fired after disparaging on-air comments at Commander's Camp. WBIGFM, the Washington Commander's radio partner fired host Don Geronimo for disparaging remarks he made about a female TV anchor during a Thursday morning broadcast from the team's training camp in Ashburn. While hosting The Don Geronimo Show on Big 100, Geronimo, whose real name is Michael Source, referred to WUSA TV sports anchor Sharla McBride as Barbie Girl as she arrived to cover the team's second day of camp. He added, I'm guessing she's a cheerleader, and later referred to her as that chick. After an internal review, Don Geronimo is no longer an employee of WBIG. Well, she does deliberately cultivate the Barbie look. And her inane commentary is kind of reminiscent of uh, someone who's, who's not particularly thoughtful. So if she, was, if she were ugly, you think that uh, she would have this job. So I think, uh, I think Don Geronimo uh, said some you know, pretty basic commonsensical observations, but uh, because this, this woman got her feelings hurt and other people got their feelings hurt on her behalf, then uh, the bloke was, was fired. So we hear about how women deserve their own you know, safe spaces and blacks deserve their own safe spaces and gays deserve their own safe spaces and Jews and every minority group deserves their own safe spaces. Well, why don't men deserve their own safe spaces too, like heterosexual men? Right, so sports is one of the last provinces in this world for you know white heterosexual men to get together, 
And one bloke who wrote a book on this very topic, Dr. David Nyland, he is a PhD in social work, and he specializes in LGBTQ issues, even though he is a cisgender male. But he's performing here his piece, Queertopia, the 2012 Sacramento Transgender Day of Remembrance. Thank you, Dr. Malazzo, and thanks again for inviting me to speak. I feel honored. So I decided to, as an ally or a cisgender person, and for people who aren't familiar with that term, I imagine many of you are cis, C-I-S, gender. It's a, a term that was coined to mark people who are not transgender, somebody whose gender identity assigned at birth is, matches up with their gender identity. Uh, it's a way of marking that cisgender is just one gender. It's no better, etc. So, so this is the, uh, the story of what happened to me um, a recent Thursday, and it's titled, A Day in the Life of a White, Able-Bodied, Cisgender Male. So the day begins by waking up at 5 a.m. I almost hit the snooze button, but I have to get up. If I don't work out now, I won't do it later. So I drag my ass to 24-hour fitness. I check in at the front desk. The front desk person does not ask me my, what my real name is or my birth name, often the case with transgender persons. I then head to the male locker room. There's only two choices, so I pick male. There is a locker available. Cool. I take off my clothes to dress in my workout attire. I worry about getting through the spin class. Some of you may know about a spin class. It's tough. But one thing I don't worry about as a cisgender person is getting stared at or feeling fear in the locker room due to my gender body. Again, frequently the experience of a transgender person. In fact, my privilege allows me to hope some hot guy in the locker room notices my efforts to get in shape with my normative body. <laughs> After spin, I head out to Kaiser. I have a doctor's appointment. I have to pee when I get to, man when I get to manage care health, so I look for the male bathroom and have no thought or worry about being harassed, physically abused, or being arrested due to my gender. I can pee in peace. When I check in at the desk at Kaiser, no stress as a cisgender person. Well, that uh, cisgender radio host just got fired for making very typical cisgender remarks. So, yeah, there are some ways that cisgender people have it easier than people who are not cisgender. Right? Minorities usually have a more difficult time than majorities. About being denied medical services due to the staff stating that gender marker on my Kaiser ID card does not match my gender identity. As a cisgender person, I also take for granted that I have health insurance through my job, and I know I won't be fired due to my gender identity. Yeah, so all cisgender people, as we know, have health insurance, right? All cisgender people can just take it for granted that they have health insurance, that they have good jobs, they live in luxurious homes, they drive fast cars. Right? Just being cisgendered, you get to short-circuit, apparently, many of the normal problems of life. Identity or expression. I also presuppose that I don't need a psychological evaluation to get medical care. Next, I fill out the health questionnaire in the waiting lobby. The form asks me to fill out what my gender is. There's just two options, male or female. I pick male. I also realize that the doctor will write some notes about me as his patient, perhaps a diagnosis he'll make, but I guarantee that he won't diagnose me gender identity disorder. When the doctor finally enters the exam room after I don't know how long I've been waiting, I tell him that I'm feeling a bit under the weather. I am 100% certain that he will not say that my condition is a result of my gender. I also don't have to worry about a disrobe. I won't be judged or, st or stared at by my doctor with an othering look due to my gender presentation. Wow, so, so many advantages there to being cisgendered that I, I wasn't even realizing. Man, I'm on, I'm on easy street, guys. We're on, we're on easy street by virtue of being cisgendered. So I read this guy's book, David Nyland. He wrote a book called Beer, Babes and Balls, Masculinity and Sports Talk Radio. So he found that uh, sports talk radio is the only arena left for white men who have been wounded by the indignities of feminism, affirmative action, and other groups' quest for social equality. Well, as other groups 
gain in social status as other groups get more and more rights as we get the development of a civil rights complex and we get the government interfering and litigating in all sorts of areas of that used to be private, such as private property and freedom of association. Yeah, the you know white male group, uh, the one group without special protection, right, is going to look for a safe space. I mean, doesn't everyone deserve a spa- safe space? Sports talk show is a venue for the embattled white male seeking recreation. It caters to this audience as truly as Rush Limbaugh does. Some some good observations. I, I like the one where there's a billboard, Armstrong and Getty, listen to them before we fire them. Right, they're local Sacramento talk show hosts who are often getting into trouble with management. And then the ethic of fandom is where people can speak both passionately and politely. And this one woman who's doing a PhD, she admits to getting hooked on sports radio while writing a dissertation. She found the show's comforting and stress-reducing. Because you develop an imaginary relationship with hosts and callers that provide a sense of belonging. Well, there are a lot of, should be a lot of ways to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of connection aside from sports talk radio or live streams. Here's a female producer. Guys think they know everything about sports and everything else. They love to debate. They don't listen to each other. They just talk over each other. Everyone is a better coach than the coach who is currently doing his job. Even though many of the hosts and many of the callers are out of shape, not athletic, they live through their favorite players. It's their way of proving their male superiority. Yeah, competition is pretty much an essential part of what it means to be a man. Men are much more physically aggressive and much more competitive than women. And this has many good sides and many downsides. Men's investment in spectator sports becomes an investment in their own projected superiority through the superiority of the best athletes. Well, that depends on what else you've got going on in your life. I would tend to suspect that the most fanatical, single-minded sports fans don't have a lot else going on in their life. If sports is a supplement to your life, to your family life, to your professional life, to your life in education, to your religious life, your community life, your volunteering life, your recovery life, your hobbies, all right, if it's a supplement to that, then I think it's probably healthy. But if it becomes the primary source of meaning in your life, obviously, that's a problem. Sports are our common denominator. You can be a blue-collar worker and you can talk sports on equal level with the chairman of a Fortune 500 company. Can't talk about business that way or world politics that way. Yeah, so sports is a way to momentarily break down barriers of race, ethnicity, age, and class. Now, I see no need to permanently break down these barriers, though if you're part of the same nation, right, nationalism can transcend these, these barriers. That's one of the great things about nationalism is that it unites a nation, it unites a people, there's a sense of equality inherent in nationalism. So sports facilitates the trans- transient construction of alliances across race, class, and ethnicity. So white suburbanites, inner city Latino and African-American men can all support the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, it's a way that people can find things in common, particularly men. So sports talk can temporarily displace one's primary racial, cultural, ethnic identity. Yeah, that's nice as a garnish in life. I don't think there's any need most of the time to transcend your racial, cultural, religious, or ethnic identity. So the romantic outlook on sports is to see more in sports than is really there and to imagine that sports exists outside of power structures, ignoring the reality that sports talk is always freighted with political importance, according to this analysis. I suppose in that uh, sports talk can help uh, develop in-group identity and your connection to other members of your nation. It can also facilitate uh, nationalism, particularly with international sports, where your nation is 
competing against another nation. So another thing that uh, talk radio and live streams do is that it can provide a sense of identity and a sense of constructed certitude. So it can provide a sense of stability with all the insecurities and information overload and buzzing confusion in the world around you, right? You get a confident host and he provides you with some sort of constructed certitude with, with magical resolutions to questions of identity, to eradicating doubt and uncertainty in a society that's increasingly fragile and ambiguous. So sports talk radio is usually a way to honor the male listener's natural masculinity and desire for gay stuff. The author critiques this. This implies that masculinity is fixed in a historical... Well, there is a substantial component of masculinity, in my view, that is fixed and ahistorical, and there is a substantial component that is socially constructed, and I will break that down a little later. The process of naturalizing heterosexual masculinity hides the reality that sports talk radio is not merely reflecting a natural manhood but helping to construct it. Yeah, that's right, but overwhelmingly, the major sports are played by heterosexual men, and overwhelmingly, the fans of the major sports, baseball, football, basketball, are heterosexual men. Right? There, occasionally, there's some athlete who's gay, but what's striking is how rare it is, and occasionally, gay men also are sports fans, but overwhelmingly, if you know someone likes sports, the odds are 99% that they're straight. Now, there's a tremendous amount of fantasy in the gay life about turning straight men gay. It's like it's the ultimate fantasy for many, for many gays. I don't see the same thing with regard to straights. I, when, when I hear straight men talking about turning a, a lesbian straight, it's almost always said as a joke. It doesn't seem to be some kind of dominant theme among straight men. But here's, here's an analysis, which I think is just fantasy. Uh, sports talk radio is shattered by a homosexual panic implicit in the fact that it consists entirely of out-of-shape white men sitting around talking about black men's buff bodies. So I've never had a fantasy about having sex with any start male athlete. Have you? I've never heard any any guy that I know talk about sports and then add, oh, I'd really like to cornhole Dak Prescott or I'd really like to you know blow uh, Barry Bonds. I mean, it just doesn't come up. And I don't hear a great deal of talk about black men's buff bodies. Right, uh, sports teams are your hired gladiators that go out to do ritual combat with other people's hired gladiators. But maybe major the National Football League and the National Basketball Association, major major league baseball, maybe they're not gay enough. Maybe they need to begin every contest with having the star athletes sodomize each other on the fifty yard line or at mid court on the pitcher's mound. Right? Maybe American sports haven't gone gay enough. Maybe we ought to start making uh, sodomy required for, for star athletes. If you want to be a professional athlete, son, well, you need to accept and enjoy and embrace the Jerry Sandusky treatment in the shower. Sports have become one of the last bastions of traditional male ideals of success, really, of male power and superiority and separa- separation from the feminization of society. Well, men like to be with men, and women also like to be with men. But women frequently want to get away from female-only spaces. But for, for a healthy man, he needs to spend a great deal of time around men because men usually have you know, high amounts of testosterone. We're kind of programmed by our genetics, by our testosterone levels, to get out there and to, to fight 
and to screw around. And it takes society, it takes a community, it takes the strong male role models, it takes tradition, right, to keep men in track, in check. And so belonging to a male-only community, such as at a church or at a synagogue, is a really good way of uh, educating and channeling male aggression, male competitiveness, you know, male, you know, male natural tendencies towards the natural passions and channel it in, in a healthy way. So when men get around women, they often have to obey some kind of you know, feminist left-wing HR ladies of acceptable discourse, and it's just entirely dispiriting. The rule-bound, competitive, hierarchical world of sports offers boys an attractive means of establishing an emotionally distant and safe relationship with others. Well, a whole bunch of uh, sports interaction is not emotionally distant. It's often incredibly intense. And then he has a whole chapter or two on the Jim Rome show. It's to talk about sports and traditional masculinity and his host provides a clear and consistent image of the masculine role, a guide on becoming a man, a rule book for appropriate male behavior, a manual on masculinity. Okay, I guess maybe some people get you know, the Jim Rohn show to get a, a manual on masculinity. I suspect it's a place where heterosexual men who love sports can talk about things and not have to tamp down and modify and edit their conversation to make it socially acceptable for left-wing HR ladies. So for men, life is largely about competition, and conversation is often becomes competition. It's a way of negotiating your status in a group. It's a way to keep people from pushing you around. You use talk to preserve your independence. Right? You use talk to prove yourself, to demonstrate your knowledge and your expertise. When men talk sports, they usually report talk. They offer information competing to establish who is most informed. It becomes sometimes verbal one-upsmanship, an oral contest. It establishes both hierarchy and unity. We are men, and we are talking about men's interests. In-group humor is a primary feature of male relationships, particularly the kind of humor that you can't get away with at work when you have an HR department. So the male bond is built on a joking relationship that negotiates the tension men feel about their relationships with each other and with women and with life. Yeah, so any strong in-group identity should come with a great deal of in-group humor. I remember when I first encountered Orthodox Jews, I was kind of intimidated by them. And I was wondering, did they ever laugh? But, you know, once I got into Orthodox Jewish life, I, I realized there were laughs aplenty. Now, laughter was not a traditional part of Orthodox Judaism, right? Jews only became famous for their humor once Jews became secular. But now the secular approach to Jewish humor has also affected Orthodox Jewish life. So in-group humor gives people a sense of community based on mutually shared background and knowledge and mores and sense of place, sense of time, sense of your in-group competing with out-groups. So humor's power lies in its sociability. People share through humor similar perceptions of what is normal and abnormal. And so a good show will produce a sense of community among its listeners, mainly young, educated, middle-class men who have access to radio, email, and faxes during the working day because unless, unless you're at that high elevated level, who ever heard of having access to radio, email, and faxes during the working day? So in this mediated, that means a conversational space. There's a shared sense of community and a set of speech rules created to provide a third place that's not home and not work for men to connect and to express their masculinity. 
So it's a speech community that has changed the traditional identity of masculinity from that of a muscular Christian of the industrial age to that of a glib narcissist of the information age. So this new man seeks to be capable and competent in Jim Rome's radio jungle to cope with the anxiety-producing challenges of the emerging millennium. So Jim Rome's very uh, pro-LGBTQ. He's, you know, in many ways, he takes very liberal perspectives. So men bond by sharing a playful speech community that's become a substitute for the real physical experience formerly acquired in tangible arenas such as the wilderness, the playing fields, and the battlefields, ways for testing manhood and achieving masculinity. So in many ways, what we're going through now is akin to the transition from feudal morality to courtier morality. Right? So when you had feudal lords who ruled a certain area of turf, right, what they said you know, went in their domain, and then with centralization, feudal lords to maintain their status and privilege and power, they had to go hang out at court. And there's a whole different morality with courtier morality because now you have to weigh your every word, your every gesture as to how it goes over with everyone else in court. So you're no longer the king of your own domain. So Jim Rome's popularity reveals men's anxiety about finding their place in the modern world and seeking this third place that's not home and not work to connect and even earn the respect of other men. So yeah, I think an essential part of being a man is wanting to earn the respect of other men. The irony and masculinist humor of Jim Rhodes show does not simply hide a macho agenda. It conceals the nervousness of men who might prefer a simpler gender and economic order. Well, I think every living thing, not just men, prefers to create an environment that is best and most conducive to their thriving. I think that's true for white Christian men, for black, you know, gay uh, uh, men, for you know, Jewish lesbians, for dandelions, for, for sharks. Now, every living thing tries to create an environment around it that is most conducive to its thriving. So this isn't just you know, some, something unique among men. Right? Americans passed the civil rights agenda. They thought they were doing something nice for blacks, but for blacks, they interpreted it as white Americans pleading guilty in the court of history, and it just reaffirmed how evil white people are and so race relations deteriorated after the Civil Rights Act. We had an explosion in violence, an explosion in murder, and we've had ever-increasing government intrusion into our lives. We've, as Christopher Caldwell points out in his book, The Age of Entitlement, we've largely replaced our former constitution with this brand-new civil rights constitution where all sorts of normal domains of privacy, such as how you use your property, who you rent to, who you hire, is now subject to government litigation and government review. We get an ever bigger, ever more expanding government civil rights industrial complex. And so it's understandable that the group that is most often victimized by the giant civil rights industrial complex, white men, are looking for some kind of safe space where they can talk about the world and their anxiety in it. Respect is not only earned through sexism or irony. Well, it's also earned through being smart and by being funny and having something valuable to say. So I used to call in a lot to talk radio when I was basically housebound by chronic fatigue syndrome. But you get to present yourself as open-minded and tolerant regarding race and homophobia on the Jim Rome show. Yeah, so the business purpose of talk radio is to sell your products. And so given that all our major institutions are controlled by the left, there are certain bright lines. You cannot question 
you cannot suggest that there's anything inferior or wrong with having sex, you know, men having sex with men. There cannot be anything inferior or wrong about same-sex marriage, about uh, different ways that uh, gays and lesbians have sex compared to straight married, you know, Christian couples. You can't suggest anything inferior at all, anything critical about gays, about Jews, about blacks, about the trans community. You can't say anything critical about any of those groups and th thrive in the modern world because the left dominates all our institutions and they will destroy you. So call us to Sports Talk Radio. Right, they're going to be constrained by the business imperatives that govern talk radio. And the business imperative is to sell as many products as possible. And to do that, you have to operate within the goodwill of our most powerful institutions. So Jim Rome's community both enables and constrains it's a mediated accountability community where men police each other in a post-feminist, post-civil rights America. Where on earth would this author get the idea that we're in a post-feminist, post-civil rights America? Now, I understand you are tremendously frustrated right now because I have gone over 25 minutes of this show, and we are currently live on Rumble. We are currently live on Twitter. We are live over DLive. We are live over Odyssey, and we are live over... YouTube, and you're frustrated, right? We're heading into 26 minutes of a show and I haven't played you anything from Decoding the Gurus, right? This is Decoding the Gurus, Decoding God Saad, professor of marketing and author of The Consuming Instinct and The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Here's a little from Decoding. And that they slash he calls the Godfather. <laughs> I don't know if anybody legitimately calls him that, that he doesn't ask them to, but in any case, God Saad, the professor of marketing, but maybe more known as an, as he describes, evolutionary behavioral scientist and author. He's got some books focusing on the evolutionary psychology of consumption patterns, but he's more recently came out with a, a book about the parasitic mind, how infectious ideas are killing common sense. And this is a completely culture war drenched book. The appearance that we are looking at, which is Gadsad, The Death of Truth and How to Revive It on Modern Wisdom Podcast 217 is also about 50% of it is a promotion of the book. So those ideas will, will come up and look at them. And mm. I want to also mention Matt because he's a figure that will come up in the clips. The person interviewing him is a guy called Chris Williamson, who is now a podcaster, YouTuber. His original claim to fame was that he was a contestant on Love Island reality TV show. And as that might imply, he's a male model and also into fitness and life hacking kind of stuff. But what he's managed to carve out in that niche, that he's, he's the IDW leaning person within that life hackery fitness area. So Andrew Doyle, James Lindsay, Gad Saad, Evolutionary Sight, Sam Harris. These yeah. are all frequent references. He sounds like someone who wins Bitcoin. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's a fair bet. And we'll see he has his own unique foibles which come up, we're not focusing on him particularly, but I think he is a emerging figure in that scene, the mm. online IDW scene. So yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'll mention before we get started is there's a bit of a connection for me with Gert's uh, study of consumption from an evolutionary point of view. There's a weak connection there with, with one of my PhD students. We published a few articles on a very similar theme, which is to basically look at individual traits towards generalized consumption. So you have stuff like consuming food, of course, but also consuming consumer economic products and also propensity for you know alcohol and drugs and things like that. So, so in psychology, there's a very strong focus on approach behavior, yeah, which is just that tendency to be. So sports as we know them today emerged out of England, out of Anglo-Saxon civilization, and then America developed its own unique sports. And when America developed its nationalism in the 19th century, became particularly strong. Americans preferred to focus on those sports that were unique to them. 
that this was still coming out of an ethos that was dominantly about you know Anglo-Saxon ideas of restraint and, and teamwork. And then uh, different cultures took up sports, and now we have criticism of the extraordinary media attention paid to trash-talking, taunting, dancing, and celebrating, right, which are very much against the Anglo-Saxon stiff upper lip ethos that used to rule sports. But why does the media pay so much attention to trash-talking, taunting, and dancing? Right? These things receive attention you know, far greater than their importance. They provide little, if any, competitive advantage. They're peripherally related to the actual competition. Now, the reason for this extraordinary attention to these behaviors is that it's racially motivated. The black athletes are said to be largely responsible for such acts, and these behaviors are seen to be a reflection of urban African-American cultural norms which conflict with white mainstream norms. Yeah, I do believe that urban African cultural norms sometimes differ from white mainstream norms, but sports writers are pretty much the most monolithically left group of all reporters. I, I mean, they cover a topic where it's so obvious that there are group differences. And we referred earlier to homosexual panic. I think the, the liberal left who, who dominate reporting and particularly reporting on sports, they go into reality panic, that their sports reflects how different groups have different gifts. And this sets them into a panic, so they become even more Stalinist in their reinforcement of you can't question that uh, every individual, every group is just equally gifted. So it, it's white male society's response to the threat to white masculinity presented by black athletic superiority and by African-American athletes' assertion of the right to define the meaning of their behavior. That's why there's so much white panic about trash talking. Well, I think because it goes against uh, Anglo-Saxon norms, the, the norms that used to dominate this society. And then there's a lot of uh, speculation by gays that uh, the sports media complex obsesses about black bodies. It allows white sports fans to fulfill voyeuristic desires to look at black athletes. I've talked to hundreds of white sports fans in my life, and none of them have ever talked about their voyeuristic desire to look at black bodies. But apparently the white homoerotic desire fetishizes black athletes and reduces their bodies to commodities. I've never seen or heard this. Now, Nationalist rhetoric around sports has significantly increased since 9-11. Yeah. So if we endure another 9-11-style attack, right, you're going to have a rapid increase in nationalist rhetoric as well. Nationalism is a latent power when it's not burning full tilt and just one or two events, and it can just burst forth into flame. The American sports culture developed in the late 19th century. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln was a bit of a cricket fan? He went to a cricket match in, the, I think, 1849. So cricket used to be played regularly in the United States and received coverage in America's major newspapers. But after the Civil War, right, America developed a much stronger nationalist identity, and Americans began to prioritize those unique American sports of, of baseball, basketball, and, and football. And so cricket fell, fell by the way, but now we've got Major League Cricket in the United States, they, they're playing their championship mash, match today, I believe. And I also think the World Cup of T20 cricket will be played in, in America today. But uh, nationalism remains the strongest political force out there.
be attracted to things in the environment with the intent of acquiring them, owning them, ingesting them, whatever. In other words, good things. So we have approach behavior and avoidance behavior. And you can, not just people, but pretty much all animals, a lot of the behavior or interactions with their environment can be broadly categorized in those two ways. So Gadsad doesn't, like he, he often mentions this research, but I think it's fair to say most of his appearances, most of his tweets, most of his discourses about the culture war stuff, more in line with his book, The Parasitic Mind, rather than his stuff on consumption. But I just wanted to mention that I'm aware of that general area and broadly sympathetic to it did you cite him we probably did cite him or rather she did <laughs> yeah that's but you haven't read his book right but i haven't read his book no I, I didn't i take your disclaimer that you're a fan and we'll we'll keep that context going into the episode that you you've been a long-term fan and <laughs> cider of gadsad in your work you kind of well, base your whole academic career around his approach so that is good to flag up well as we'll come to i think he says he founded the field of evolutionary consumption which i didn't realize until he until he told yeah, me you're that. playing in his garden map we mm. all are that's mm. if he he is the Alpha and Omega, as we'll see. So, mm. yes, let's kick back. I'm just thinking, what, what type of people become self-promoters like a, a God Saad? All right. I, I think it's usually people who don't find that other people are promoting them. And usually other people aren't promoting them to the degree that uh, that individual may wish because people haven't really made that many important contributions. So it's possible to be a self-promoter and you're promoting something that is deserving of a wider audience, something that is valuable and is not being exposed to enough people. But in the real world, the way it usually plays out, whenever you hear about someone's a self-promoter, it's not a good sign because people usually only put effort into promoting themselves if others aren't doing it or they just have an entirely disproportionate idea of their own importance, which seems to be true with regard to God Sada. And get into the Godfather. So to start with, Matt, before we get into the Chris Williamson interview. I want to just provide for you and the listeners an illustration of Gadsad's rapier wit and satirical stylings. This is him. Well, well, let's just listen. This is a, from a video on YouTube. Hi, everybody. This is Gadsad. An acquaintance sent me an article in Salon wherein a psychologist by the name of John Gartner said that the reason why the number of deaths due to COVID is so high in the United States is because Donald Trump is a sexual sadist who enjoys torturing people. And so this is a form of democide. These are literal words in the article. So because I don't want to be a victim of Donald Trump's sexual sadism, I know he'll come up to Canada to kill the rest of us because of COVID. I'm back to hiding under the table. We need to be protected from sexual sadist Donald Trump, who's trying to kill people because of his masturbatory urges. Think of me. Rapier, like it's a wow, that is that is rapier, like uh, like wit. All right, let's get uh, let's get some Dennis Prager and uh, God Saad. Just imagine such the two together. That you were gonna have me on every third day. I'm a bit insulted, but thank you at least for coming back at me a year later. That is funny. We did a, we did have a bromance. That, that, that is exactly accurate. So uh, things have gotten worse. <laughs> if oh uh, infectious ideas are killing common sense, it's worse today than a year ago. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. So let me tell you something. Uh, when Joe Biden came to power, I, uh, I did a similar dance to Stephen Pinker. Maybe you saw when Stephen Pinker was dancing of joy when Biden won, because I knew that by Biden winning, it would only continue to make my book that much more relevant. So thank you, Joe Biden, for ensuring that my book remains relevant for the next 400 years. That's very interesting. So Stephen Pinker did a dance. Is that right? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, like a really awkward dance. I, I think I've uh, 
I ruined my chances of us having a nice relationship moving forward. I mean, I wasn't. I was just joking around. I was mocking his dance. I thought it was so silly, but he was so overjoyed that you know, finally. Wait, we're having a problem with the connection here, uh, Sean. You, you know, uh, this professor at Concordia, and uh, he, he's a fighter for liberty. He's a fighter for common sense. It's an interesting question, by the way. It just occurred to me: Is the fight for common sense and reason the same as the fight for liberty? I don't know the answer offhand, but I think I think the answer. Well, sometimes liberty is maladaptive. All right, if if you're under great stress, or uh, think about airline pilots. All right, uh, Anthony Camilla and Gavin McGinnis made this point. Okay. You want your your airline pilots to be predictable, all right? You wouldn't feel good if your airline pilot looked like Lizzo. You wouldn't feel good if your airline pilot wore dreads. You wouldn't feel good if your airline pilot probably had all sorts of tattoos. You want someone with a nice haircut, with a professional manner and a professional bearing. And these are all restrictions on liberty. Right, but don't we want those restrictions, say, with regard to airline pilots, or possibly with regard to our own doctor or our own surgeons? I remember when I had uh, therapy with this bloke who wore earrings, and at the end of the first session, I said, "I'd like to give you some unsolicited advice that I will never repeat again." I just want to say right now, do you feel like hearing it? He said, "Sure, lay it on me." And I said. Uh, uh, I would not advise wearing your earrings and jewelry in a professional context because it will cause many of us to kind of shy away from you or to take you less seriously. And uh, he thought about it, and he actually adopted that. He, he stopped wearing them. And I never brought it up again. I, I you know, wasn't trying to change him. I just thought I'd just share that, that insight with him. So in a whole bunch of ways in life, you want, you want liberty restricted, right? You don't want your... Uh, airline pilot um, singing songs over the, the cockpit, right? You don't want him dressing bizarrely or acting out of the normal. The answer is yes. The same people who fight for liberty are fighting for, uh, for rationality. My, one of my best examples, obviously, is, not obviously, but one of my best examples, obvious or not, is that people who have had COVID are told that they must have a vaccine, must, must take the vaccine. That is pure anti-science anti-reason positioning, pure. You can't get more pure than that. And it's the living proof that the issue is power over people, not science. Wait, what did he say? I was just kind of taking a pause. Let me hear this again. People who have had COVID are told that they must have a vaccine. Must, must take. Okay, so many doctors, many scientists, many public health officials say that even if you've had COVID, you should take the vaccine. So that's either true or it's not true. So I'm not an expert on it. I, I will go with wherever the evidence suggests. But as the COVID virus is constantly mutating, it doesn't seem absolutely unfathomable to me that, uh, say, public health officials or some doctors may recommend that even if you had COVID, right, you'll, be, you'll get more protection if you also add in the vaccine. The vaccine. That is pure anti-science, anti-reason positioning. Pure. You can't get more pure than that. And it's the living proof that the issue is power over people, not science. That's all it is. Power. Really? That's the proof? I mean, whatever the science says. If, if enough studies, comprehensive, well-done studies show that having a vaccine gives you additional protection, then that's simply true. Power over people. We're, appro we're, we're approaching a, a civil war state in the country. Uh that's absolute nonsense. We're not approaching a civil war state in, in a country, but it's the kind of 
aggrandizing, you know, self-important. I see dramatic things that you don't see. I mean, think about all the incentives for, for people like me to do a video saying that AI means the end of the world as we know it, or global warming means the end of the world as we know it, or the CIA killed President Kennedy, or you know, COVID vaccines will kill you. Like all the incentives are to say these these you know attention grabbing points right there are no views to be gained making a video casting doubt on the existence of ufos right all the views or the attention and whether the the money comes from playing to people who want to hear something exciting such as that there are ufos that the government is you know promoting vaccines that will kill us all right god i don't know what happened but it's a pleasure to have you back let me see if i can hear oh, you. thank you so much can you hear me okay good and, and he, he's not a, a leftist. I want to say that on his behalf, because he's actually he actually said that the universities are becoming a laughing stock because of the left, which is a very courageous thing for any professor to say. I think he's talking there about Stephen Pinker, especially one at an elite college in the United States. Having said that, uh, it is it is clear that reason does not inform his positions. His ex- ecstasy over Joe Biden's win is, is a perfect example, in my opinion. Your reaction to that is that a fair assessment? It's totally fair, right? Because how could you, I mean, how could you hold these two perfectly uh, cognitively inconsistent positions in your head, right? I mean, if you think that all the leftist idea pathogens that I discussed in the parasitic mind are really destroying reason, then you should certainly not be celebrating the victory of Joe Biden, because Joe Biden is only going to exacerbate every single one of those idea pathogens. So it simply doesn't make sense, but it shows you, Dennis, what happens when a mind, even as brilliant and as accomplished as that of Stephen Pinker, is politically, uh, you know, under a, I mean, tribalized, right? Okay, so... I read this book, Beer, Babes, and Balls, all right? Masculinity and Sports Talk Radio by apparently this gay PhD in social work, David Nyland, out of Sacramento. And I wanted to respond to this book and talk about what I think it means to be a man in, say, America today in 2023. So a few sentences from the book that I'm going to be reacting to. So the author says, I view masculinity as a social construction that assumes different forms in different historical moments and contexts. Yeah, I do believe that masculinity and femininity are partly social constructions. They are also partly genetic constructions. So culture is the combination of genes with a particular environment at a particular time and place. The book says men pay a cost in the form of poor health, shallow relationships for conformity with the narrow definitions of masculinity that promise to bring them status and privilege. Well, there are adaptive and maladaptive definitions of masculinity, right? Going into many workplaces and flipping people the bird and yelling the F word and boasting about the different types of sex you had that weekend, right? That's not going to be a type of masculinity that usually is adaptive to your thriving. A Martian arriving on planet Earth and not knowing what masculinity was would quickly form the opinion that it is a highly damaged and damaging condition with few, if any, redeeming features. All right, that's absolutely absurd, All right? Every skyscraper, every major technological innovation, right? Almost every business innovation, right? Almost every construction innovation has been accomplished by men. So the world we live in has primarily been built by men. It's been designed by men. So I agree with the left that masculinity like femininity is in part a social construction. And I agree with the right that masculinity and femininity are equally genetically constructed, all right? We, we are both genetically and socially constructed. It is society and genes make us who we are, all right? This idea that modern masculinity has no virtues is absurd given that men 
build almost everything that we have in, in the modern world, I, I'd say that uh, being male has some virtues. So what does it mean to be a man today? If someone exhorts you to be a man, what are they really saying? So this is my vision for masculinity at this particular time and place. But I think much of this would also ring true for hundreds of years past. So mastery, right? A man should have mastery of himself. Right? A man who is continually drinking what he doesn't wish to be drinking in, in the aftermath, right? Drinking to excess. Someone who is not in mastery of what he eats. Someone who's not in mastery of the amount of TV that he watches. Someone who is like yanking himself off to pornography every day. Right? Someone who doesn't put in the type of performance at work or with his family that would make him feel good about himself. Right? A man who regularly compulsively participates in his own destruction is not a man. A man should have mastery over himself. So I feel like I largely have mastery over myself. I do a little more attention seeking than I would wish. I lack a certain consideration. I wish I showed greater consideration towards myself and towards other people. I wish I had higher levels of conscientiousness both towards myself and towards other people. What are the other ways that I deviate from what I wish? But that's pretty much it. I, I feel like I largely have mastery over myself. I'm not frequently saying things on this show that I regret. I'm not frequently saying things in real life that I re regret. Uh, one part of my life is not at war with other parts of my life. Pretty much everything in my life is either neutral with regard to the other parts or is positive, is, is building something. So... I may be wrong, I may be in fantasy land, I may be in cuckoo land, I may have way too many kangaroos running around in my top paddock, but I stand before you this July 30th, 2023, feeling like I have mastery over myself and some mastery over many different parts of life. I steadily paid off all my credit card debt beginning in 2016, then steadily started saving since 2016. So I think part of having mastery over life is that you're building for the future, you're saving money, you are putting yourself in a position to protect and provide for the people who you love, such as your family. So a man should not just have mastery over himself, he should have mastery over many different parts of life, including his bank account, his education, his profession, his, his family, his community. A man lacking in mastery is not a man. Uh, man should be at ease with reality, even those uncomfortable, nasty parts of reality, even with things like hierarchy and rules, right? A man realizes that every community has to have hierarchy and has to have rules. So a man should recognize when it is appropriate for him to lead, when it's appropriate for him to follow, when it's appropriate for him to sing, when it's appropriate for him to dance, when it's appropriate for him to make romance, when it's appropriate to make a joke, when it's appropriate to fling his arms around, to jump up and down, to throw a ball. All right, a man should be at ease with reality. Uh, men are more physically aggressive than women. Right, 95% of men are physically stronger than women their age. So a man should be at ease with being a man with his physical aggression, challenging it in uh, productive ways such as working out. Right? Men love to compete. It's part of the gift of testosterone. We like to fight within the rules. Women usually hate competition. Women usually hate the stark winners and losers that come with competition. When life forces women to compete, they usually don't observe the rules and they fight dirty. So it's not pathological to be a man, to enjoy competition, to enjoy fighting within the rules. So one of the responsibilities of manhood is the willingness to take the life of a predator, right, to protect those you love, right? If someone is coming to kill you, the Talmud says you should get up a little earlier and kill him first, right? That's the manly thing to do. 
The world is filled with dangerous men, and a real man recognizes that reality, takes steps to protect himself and his community from super predators. So a man shouldn't just do things to feel like he's doing something. A man shouldn't just say things to get something off his chest. All right, A man should weigh the consequences of his words and his actions. A man should foresee, should spend some time thinking, what will be the consequences? What will be the implications? How will this affect the people most important to me? So I was reading something about live streaming, and it said there are five people you should always keep in mind when you live stream. I think this is excellent. Right? Assume... Five people will watch when you broadcast. Your best friend, your worst enemy, your boss, your mother, and a lawyer. Right? Always assume five people will watch when you broadcast. Your best friend, your worst enemy, your boss, your mother, and a lawyer. Pretty good advice. Right, back to decoding the gurus on God's side. The level of satire, mm, you know, step <laughs> over Armando Iannucci. This is the new master. Did you get there, Matt, that he's... He's not actually afraid. It, it's a party. And the him hiding oh, under the desk, oh, this this oh. is something that he has done. Just got a text from a friend. Perfect weather, such as we have today in New York City, is a fertilizer of racism. Unrepeatedly. The best thing about satire tends to be when you repeat the same joke and just emphasize it more. But that's, that's often considered the kind of creme de la creme of uh, satirical delivery. Wait, wait. I'm just catching up here. So he's, he wasn't actually afraid of getting sexually... No! Ah. Yeah, that's a, that's a joke. Yeah, the whole hiding under the desk bed, that was just a bit. So, clever. Yes, it is. It was, it was very clever. And as we'll see and hear, this is just an illustration of the mastery of parodic satire that, that, that Gad has. Yes, it's not the first example. And before we get into the interview too, there's something I want to read out. It's, a, it's actually part of a good review from uh, his book. And now this is not covering his book, but it's covering a lot of the same themes. And I think it's apropos. The reviewer describes Gad Sad's writing voice as vile. He says it's like reading a right-wing YouTube comment section, only instead of it being a phalanx of angry 20-year-old virgins, it's a single boomer academic. Large swathes of the book are sad quoting his own tweets and then describing in blistering technicolor his cutting retorts whereupon everybody on the internet clapped. We've got your deep admiration for his evolutionary ideas balanced against the negative book review. So we've set the context well. We've provided a nice sample of his satirical depth. Now let's get into the meat of the sad pie. The concepts he wants to introduce is the parasites, right? Brain parasites. So we've got a couple of clips where he's outlining what this idea is that he wants to introduce into discourse. Here's, here's how the idea came to him. As a result of my, if you like, my openness to studying other animals, I noticed that there was a field called neuroparasitology, which is the study of how parasites... Okay, I got some detailed and thoughtful feedback from Lauren. Is your mother still alive, Luke? No, she isn't. Uh, she died when I was three. Do you keep the commandment of honoring her with wholesome speech? So I'm not aware that there's a commandment to honor your mother with wholesome speech throughout all of your life. Obviously, you should speak in a respectful tone to your mother, but I'm not aware of any commandment that everything you say in life, including a live stream, should you know, meet with her comfort and approval. So I was complaining about... So I need to set up uh, even even more context here. So I made made uh, some videos about Anthony Cumia, and I said that I found his autobiography, his memoir, you know, pretty honest and and amusing. I read some amusing parts of it, and then I was called on the you know called out for saying that I was amused by the antisocial behavior of Anthony Camilla. So here I was called, called out by reasonable and responsible. 
Is absolute, unfiltered, uninhibited frankness always a virtue? No, it is not. Even when done publicly? No, it's not. Have you, Mr. Ford, not repeatedly stated that as a rule, you don't discuss on your streams those relationships and bonds that are most sacred to you or cherished by you? That is correct. Blatant public copulation of any sort and brazen public boasting of wanton routine adultery violating that most sacred trust, the desacralizing of the most fundamental foundational bond and institution that's the very core of civilization is adultery, anything less. And you find these antics of Anthony Camilla amusing? Are they any less antisocial, disruptive, nihilistic than any number of other phenomenon that you have repeatedly expressed distaste for? Are they any less heinous, unconscionable? Okay, so just because I find Anthony Camilla's book amusing, and that includes a story where he tries to disguise his adultery by uh, you know, rubbing motor oil all over himself, and I've also heard uh, other celebrities have inserted, inserted their appendage into a burrito to try to you know, hide the, the evidence of their adultery. I find that amusing. Just because I find something amusing, that doesn't mean that's the only reaction I have to it. That doesn't mean that I then think that behavior is morally good, that it's pro-social, that it's worthy of applause. All right? Uh, you, could, you could tell me all sorts of stories about horrible things, and it might have an involuntary or a voluntary reaction of laughter. That doesn't mean that I don't also have moral judgments to make. All right? I was telling a friend the other day that I had a strong emotional reaction to parts of the New Testament. And he replied, oh, you shouldn't just have an emotional reaction. You should have a cognitive reaction. And I think, when did I say I only have an emotional reaction to, to the New Testament? I just admitted I have an emotional reaction, and then I have additional other reactions, right? Anyone who has any sort of relationship with his parent, right, is going to have love for his parent, hate for his parent, disgust with his parent, admiration for his parent, right? To have any sort of relationship with anyone, you're going to have a whole panoply of, of emotions. So I found Anthony Camille's book amusing. I find much of his commentary amusing. And yeah, a lot of it is also antisocial. So I, I think I was mentioning that Anthony Camille would talk about, you know, women coming out to his shows and sodomizing themselves with zucchini. And yeah, I find that amusing. But here's the, here's the critique. Look, you're rationalizing, justifying where you speak about explicit sexual dialogue. So what parts of life should we not talk explicitly about? All right. I mean, people come to a live stream like this to hear things that they would normally only think inside their brain, but to hear those things spoken out loud. Now, I would not speak you know, in a sexually explicit manner in all sorts of different contexts. Right? This is a live stream where people who want my unfiltered perspective on life, right? that, that's why people come here, or they want my selection of other people's clips. All right, but that's the reason people come to a live stream or radio talk show host, to get, get things that they're only thinking said out loud. So there is a time and a place for explicit discussion of all parts of life, including sex. But uh, Lauren says, sounds like you are rationalizing and justifying why you speak about explicit sexual dialogue of others by explaining that people are emotionally complicated and you find it both appalling and amusing. Well, yeah, I don't want to be just Johnny OneNote. This isn't a show that uh, primarily revolves around pronouncing moral judgments, right? There are a lot of shows and a lot of skilled people, a lot of holy people, a lot of religious people, a lot of 
more morally elevated people than myself who will do shows that only consist of making moral judgments. That is not this show. You remind me of someone who's joined a 12-step program for Curseaholics Anonymous, and then they start live streaming on YouTube, and they drop the F-bomb in every sentence they speak. What good does it do? Well, I don't know what good it does. You'd have to look at a person's whole life. People are complicated. So people may fail to live up to the ideal, but uh, frequently I think 12-step programs, even if they haven't uh, helped people abstain from whatever it is that they want to abstain from, it has given them community. It's given them hope. Uh, people like David Foster Wallace, I don't think he would have lived as long as he did and written the books and the essays that he did if he didn't have years and years and years of 12-step programs that helped him navigate a reality that was otherwise completely unlivable for him. He could not go on without 12-step programs. So just because 12-step programs don't transform somebody's life in every single way of which you would expect, that doesn't mean they haven't provided any good. Years ago, while attending church, we would always spot the 12-step people by the way they would conduct themselves at church. They would stand up at the pulpit like they owned the church, right? They sounds like they had a sense of ease with themselves as a result of working the 12 steps. And they began pouring out their whole life story, including the explicit details of the people in their lives that were the closest to them, right? You don't have the right to hurt other people, obviously, when you're speaking publicly. Most people would leave the church. Seems like people are put under a spell when they stand in front of recording equipment and all of a sudden get diarrhea of the mouth. So nothing is free from abuse. So 12-step programs can unleash this very behavior that you talk about, and it sounds quite distasteful to me. Get a hold of yourself, 40. The evils of technology, I tell you. Don't ever stand in front of a microphone at a church. God only knows how the equipment will be used on you. This is how they experiment on the masses. So I'm not sure who they is. But uh, Laurent responds to me, it would be nice for you to honor your mother's memory by wholesome speech. Wholesome speech in everything? Really? What good does it do? Is this what you do to improve your life? Yeah, I try to be, I try to be honest. That's what I do to improve my life. I try to be honest about myself, about the world around me. If so, continue doing what you do. No one stopping you, free speech to comment on it. Yep. I'm sure there are plenty of mixed stories about recovery programs and live streamers. Yes. If this is your recovery, so be it. Yes. I have watched Church of Entropy and Duvid's channel for two years. Duvid mentioned that he found Jean-Francois Garapi via your site. I found Duvid's channel through Jean-Francois Garapi. Fekor also discusses issues on Duvid's channel and comments on yours. You're all connected and somehow just connected and curious. Thought perhaps you might have been a moderator for Church of Entropy and Duvid. Nope. I don't watch channels for long anyway. Writing comments is my way of venting. doesn't matter what draws me in and what sends me away. It's obvious you'll get the axe too. Oh, I'll get the axe from her. No, it does matter what uh, someone draws someone in and sends them away. It's interesting to me. That's the most useful feedback you can give to a live streamer or a performer or a, a writer. Right? If you want to give constructive feedback, do it in the framework of what what draws you to their work, and then what sends you away. Jean-Francois is the only one I haven't made rude comments on. Maybe listening to live streamers has become an addiction, and now I need recovery. All right, let's go to the chat. Talking about fobbing, snubbing someone in your company to engage with your phone. I hate that. I really feel sorry for husbands in particular, I, I notice, who struggle with this. 
Bernard confesses, I use my phone too much. The older I get, the more I understand my parents, and I am in awe of the stress and trauma they endured to keep a roof over our head. I was briefly in 12-step fellowships, and I read about it is either AA meetings or the insane asylum. Thanks to Reagan, we have no insane asylums to go to. Uh, let's get a little bit more from decoding the gurus. Can infect the brains of a whole host of hosts. Mm-hmm. So there, he's, he spotted something. Now, how does this apply in the case of human? Humans suffer not only from actual brain worms in the same way that the mouse does, but we suffer from another class of idea pathogens, and those are actual ideas that are parasitic. So you got that map? Mm-hmm. There are actual parasitic brain worms that humans might suffer from, but we also have this metaphorical brain worm that can take over, and this would include certain ideas like postmodernism um, is the mother of all brain worms, as, as he'll explain. There's just one more clip of him kind of making the metaphor concrete, right? Just just to make it clear what he's what he's saying. They can take a otherwise supposedly functioning human being, and then you can have these idiotic ideas infect your brain so that you could become a mush of bullshit so that you, instead of instead of jumping into the, the water as the insect does, you now jump off the abyss of infinite lunacy, right? Hmm. So he talks a lot about this brain worms idea, which is obviously the subject for his book, The Parasitic Mind. I have to say, Chris, he doesn't really flesh it out much more than those clips indicate, does he? There is one clip where he maybe draws the point like a bit more concretely, right? Like that, that he talks about the parallel that he wants to describe, right? It's, it's this one where he starts talking about a parasite that affects mice. Oxoplasma gondii is a parasite that affects the brains of uh, mice. And when they are infected with this brain worm, they lose their innate fear of cats. They become sexually attracted to the urine of the cat, which is not a good thing for a mouse to, to be attracted to. And so I took this principle from animal uh, context, and I argued that humans suffer not only from actual brain worms in the same way that the mouse does, but we suffer from another class of idea pathogens, and those are actual ideas that are parasitic. Yeah. Okay, upon listening to it, it doesn't actually really help that much. But Okay, so I jotted down some ideas what I think it means to be a man in 2023. So part of it's recognizing and being at ease with reality, recognize the, the Tom Saul truism. There are no solutions in life. There are only trade-offs. And a man should have other options aside from sports talk radio or live streams to bond with men. A man should spend most of his spare time with other men. Men need a tribe. The more you have in common with others, the more likely you are to bond with them. So just as gays and Jews and trans and blacks all right, need their own safe spaces, all right, heterosexual white men need it too. It's not a weakness or a flaw or a pathology or a sin or a bigotry all right, to prefer to be around people like yourself. Most people benefit from a strong in-group identity. Right? You shouldn't need to turn to talk radio or to live streams to assuage loneliness. A man should have friends. A man should have community in addition to family. Uh, men are predisposed by their genes to fornicate and to fight. Men should be part of male-only communities that elevate these basic instincts, the natural passions, in healthy directions. So men around women frequently just watered down versions of themselves they're the type of man that is acceptable to some kind of feminist-run HR department. But I might be biased here because I am from Australia, the most sexually segregated first world nation. So once you've found your tribe, once you've found your identity through your tribe, right, you will have found your ethic as well, and you won't need uncertainty-reducing cons like uh, right-wing talk radio and Fox News and the various right-wing gurus. Men need healthy enthusiasms outside of their families, such as career, education, religion, and hobbies. 
right? Almost every man has had the experience of being punched in the face. And so virtually every man has learned not to say certain derogatory things to avoid fighting words. Most women, I suspect, have not been punched in the face. I certainly hope so. And hence, they often say things that would get a man a good thumping. So I think women are much more delicate than men. And I'm not sure we should be so enthused about the Women's World Cup. There are certain uh, knee injuries that women are two to eight times more susceptible to than men. A huge proportion of women who play soccer suffer severe injuries. I I don't think we should be uh, applauding Women's World Cup soccer, right? Women are much more delicate than men. I don't think it's necessarily such a great idea to celebrate women playing soccer or women playing rugby, God forbid, or let alone women fighting each other. Men are more physically robust. They are more built for combat and for competition and for fighting. They're physically stronger than women. Most women, I hope, have not had the experience of being punched in the face, and hence women often say things that would get a man a good thumping that men have learned not to say to others. So women are often quite uh, derogatory and say fighting words, but because they're women, they don't have the experience of being punched in the face. And so they get away with a lot of crap. A man has appropriate levels of fear, right? A man should not be too fearful. Inappropriately, he should not lack appropriate levels of fear. Man should be at ease with the natural passions. He shouldn't hate himself for wanting sex or fame or fortune or status and the like. He should spot those passions rising into view and he should master them and use the energy that comes from them to do good things. A man should not need other people to tell him who he is. So when he gets useful feedback, he should be grateful. A man should be primarily self-validating. So if I think that a blog post or a live stream is solid, all right, and nobody else does, that that should be okay for me. I should not need other people to applaud. It's nice when it happens. I value feedback, but I should primarily have the ability to to self-validate or to self-criticize everything I'm saying and doing. A man should not placate on a regular basis, right? No more placation than is absolutely necessary. Man should feel like the king of his castle. So even if he lives with his family, he should have his own space. Man needs his man cave. Man should feel good if his life is less than 95% selfish. So if you're going around leading a 90% selfish life, you should applaud yourself because most people I saw from the work of one economist, one paper, lead a 95% selfish life. So if you can get that down under 95% at all, even if it's just 93%, you're doing better than most and you should feel good about it. A man will feel better when he has clarity that almost all our major institutions are controlled by the left. And they have radically different conceptions of masculinity from the traditional one. So the challenges that men face today are similar to the ones faced by the feudal lord who had to move to court. He had to learn to code switch from lord speak to courtier speak. Ronnie Goodman points this out in his excellent work in progress, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So think about the old feudal nobility found themselves progressively emasculated militarily and economically, found themselves stripped of their glorious self-sufficiency that was the hallmark of an earlier, more anarchic period. If they wanted to retain any vestige of their former power and prestige, this now required not physical prowess and military excellence, but cultivating the right relationships with the sources of power at court. They had to take up full-time residence in the absolutist monarchic court in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. This is one of the decisive moments in the Western 
civilization process, right? So this meant undergoing a whole set of thorough psychological changes that would eventually spread beyond monarchic courts and profoundly affect the identity of the modern West, shaping our basic concept of what it means to be civilized. So one way of thinking about the difference between the left and the right is that the left is more civilized, meaning more disciplining and restraining and editing of the natural passions compared to those of us on the right who are more medieval, more like the old feudal lords, right? So the feudal lord who must go to court just like those of us who must go to work where there's an HR department run by some you know, left-wing feminist, right? that man is no longer a free man. We need now become slaves to our employers. right? We're no longer master of our own domain. We now live at court 40 hours a week. We must serve the court morality, the prince. We must wait on the prince at his table. And at court, you'll be surrounded by people and you must behave towards each of them in exact accordance with their rank and with your own rank. You must learn to adjust your speech and your gestures exactly to the different ranks and standing of people at court. You must learn to measure your language exactly, even to control your eyes exactly, just like men increasingly have to do when they go to a workplace with a large enough number of workers that there's a HR department, which in all likelihood will be run by a woman with a left-wing orientation. So feudal lords like men today since the civil rights era have had to develop a new self-discipline, have to develop incomparably stronger reserve, have to be incomparably better at editing your speech and your gestures, right? Because you are now living in a much more interdependent world. So the creation of a new social space, whether it is the new workplace governed by a plethora of civil rights legislation or the old the absolutist monarchy, right? This new social space generates a new personality, a new emotional structure in people, a new court rationality. So the more crude habits, the coarser habits, the wilder, more uninhibited customs of medieval society with its warrior upper classes, right? Where life was constantly threatened, you now have to learn to become soft, polished and civilized and that's true for men living under the civil rights industrial complex so medieval mayhem and wantonness have become suppressed and you now live under a day-to-day minute-to-minute coercion that uh, one individual is capable of exerting on another that uh, demands for good behavior are raised more emphatically and behavior must be much more disciplined than has ever been done before Right, so when you had more primitive social arrangements, such as if you work for yourself, all right, if you're your own boss, right, that's not like working at a corporation. Right? More primitive social arrangements are marked by uncomplicated chains of human interdependency. Now our interdependency has become complicated. If you work in a corporation or a large number of workers, it's complicated. You have to exert much more self-discipline. You have to edit your words much more carefully the larger the number of workers at your workplace, right? You may get to enjoy relations that are, say, purely negative or purely positive, right, when you work for yourself. But when you work in a large workplace, you have to learn to navigate ambiguous relationships and ambiguous friendships, alliances, right? So you have to move beyond a peculiar black and white coloring, into a more complicated emotional palette. 
you have much more extended chains of dependency when you're enmeshed at court or when you're enmeshed in a large corporation. And these larger chains of dependency will develop in you unknown levels of ambiguity, contradiction, and compromise and restraint in your feelings and speech and behavior. Right? You'll have to mute your affection and mute your dislike of people in various proportions and nuances. You have to become more calculating. You have to become less wholehearted in your sentiments. You have to become less sincere and less authentic. Right? So people on the left, generally speaking, are more calculating, less wholehearted in their sentiments, less sincere, less authentic. They are more disciplined, and they edit themselves more carefully. And so the more your life is intertwined layers of social interdependency, the more disciplined and self-editing you have to become. Right? So people develop a new moral sophistication, and this is the product not of advanced knowledge, not of new books. It is the gradual interjection of new social modes, of new social challenges. It's the muting of the emotions that is required by the new court rationality. So you get the development of this new social and psychological sophistication. And you get the lowering of thresholds of shame, embarrassment, and repugnance. So people will seek to suppress in themselves every characteristic that they feel is animal. So there's an intensification of disgust before the ejection of saliva or ejaculate. Right? No longer cool to just spread your seed willy-nilly. Attitudes towards food and meat and sex become transformed. It used to be that you'd carve a dead animal at the table. That was a matter of indifference or even pleasure. Now, the animal origin of meat dishes has to be concealed and changed by the art of its preparation and carving so that when you're eating an animal, one is scarcely reminded of its origin. Eating with one's hands becomes increasingly taboo. Right? You get the introduction of the knife and fork and crockery, and the whole dining experience considerably changes. Let's go back to decoding Godsard. You know, the parallel is clear, right? The self-destructive thing which takes over a brain and mm. does the host harm. So the first thing that should make anybody think of is Richard Dawkins' idea of memes, right? Yes. It is parasitic on the meme metaphor, <laughs> yes. the, the idea of memes. It is, it is. So, so the tricky thing is figuring out what, if anything, Gadsad's idea of parasitic ideas adds to the idea of memes. So just to rehash the idea of memes, which is now into popular culture, it's just the idea that ideas are a little bit like genes in that they spread and become more prevalent in the population of brains or minds based not so much on whether they're good or not or necessarily helpful or not, but rather just on being good at spreading. So everything from catchy tunes to clickbait to slogan type stuff or conspiracy theories can be thought of as memes. And it's the fact that it is so common, that the word meme is so commonly used now is an indication that that at least is a helpful metaphor. The thing that I can't figure out is how does the idea of parasitic ideas add anything to that? Because if you add in the idea of parasitic, then that's the idea that the meme is somehow drawing energy from the host. It's, some... it's benefiting itself at your expense. So that implies that parasites are a living organism which exploit another living organism, but ideas and ideologies are not living organisms. So yeah, we are being parasitically infected by ideas that are using up humans for their own benefit. But of course, they're not yeah. actually alive. <laughs> so the, the, the... Yeah, but, but, that, but that's all contained in the... Okay, so I'm thinking about Ronnie Goodwin's book, conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia and thinking you could 
just rework it as see masculine claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of manophobia because with the rise of the civil rights industrial complex more and more of natural behavior and expression has to be suppressed okay i also did a second essay last night you are going to be thrilled to find out about that but uh, meanwhile more decoding original idea of memes right which don't necessarily have the interests of the uh, mind host, the, the believer right? yeah mind viruses yeah, yeah so if you think of it in terms of memes it's just more like an idea will spread and be accepted because it's appealing and good at spreading but not because it necessarily does you any real material good that's true of his idea of brain parasites but i just can't see any additional use of this metaphor yeah it is a little bit like he's just come up with a synonym for mind virus and a fairly superficially distinct one at that we will get into him talking about what the content of these mind okay you may be wondering what uh what uh, mickey carlson Robert Wright uh, talking about, they, they talked about Pepe memes and Ron DeSantis. I asked while listening to Bill Sheeran and Matt Lewis discuss this. By the way, Matt has a new book out called Filthy Rich Politicians. Sounds good. Um, but they were, and by the way, Matt, of course, a, uh, a conservative himself, though certainly not a Trumpist, uh, who, who at one point had, I think, hopes for DeSantis, described him as something like uh, humorless and mean with an annoying voice or something. I mean, it's just like, they both completely dismissed him. But He's gotten rid of the annoying voice in this one Megyn Kelly clip. Hmm. Apparently I you think that that would take digital technology. I mean, you can't. No, apparently you, can, apparently you can. You can train yourself to speak lower. Hmm. So uh, anyway, I developed this theory. They were talking about the weird. Uh, so this guy you mentioned who got fired, this campaign aide, for doing an online meme that turned out to have some kind of Nazi imagery that he denies uh, having understood. Um, but I gather there, there's been a certain amount of use on DeSantis' social media, at least up to this point, of uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of far-right memes or kind of, um, what was the term they used? Oh, four, four or six years ago when this, these guys first, like Peppy the Frog. What's the term for the constituency to Peppy the Frog? Yeah. You now know what I mean? Now it's called base, but I forget what it's called. Something else. Anyway, my theory was that... Uh, Groypers or all right. Maybe they were trying to take advantage of the fact that, diff, you know, increasingly, you know, different audiences are on different wavelengths. And so they send out Peppy the Frog. I don't know if they send out Peppy himself, but that kind of shit. But it's only going to get to the people who understand it, or at least they're the only people going to notice it. And it's mainly only going to get to them. You can't get away like, with that these days. Well, can't you? I mean, is a guy. No, yeah, look, every, time does, every time he does it, it's immediately posted on the liberal media. See, DeSantis is a fascist. You can't do that. I'm going to contradict what I said before, which is, uh, you know, he, usually you go for both groups, the moderates and the right wingers. But mm -hmm. he seems to uh, be focusing on also getting in. Apparently, this is this guy's Nate Hawkman. Okay, he's right. he's a very bright guy. We'll hear from him again. He's smart. He has a lot of energy. He was a rising star at the National Review. I actually recommended him for a job. Now I, my credibility is totally shot. And uh, uh, but he he has a project which is to, to take the alienated far right men who are becoming Nazis and woo them back to sanity. So if you can get them to endorse a at least half-establishment governor like DeSantis, that's moving them in the right direction, okay? Mm -hmm. But why would DeSantis want to reach these crazy people? I mean, there are not that many of them. They're influencers. They have a large online following. But in terms of voters, they're just not that big. Ignore them. Mm -hmm. yet, yet he seems to have had a strategy for reaching out to them. Uh, and I don't understand why. Steve Bannon has the same strategy, okay? He's always keeping this group of people on his side and churned up. And uh, there must be either, either they're both crazy uh, mm -hmm. or they have, there's some secret poll showing that these people are the key to victory that I haven't seen. But it, it, that, that's the part I mean about this. Well, they have an intensity, I guess, but they, they don't have numbers and they don't have good judgment. Understand the strategy being crazy. Why appeal to these people at all? Why have anybody doing memes, unless it was a personal project of Hockman, doing memes to appeal to them and get them that their influencers tweeting for DeSantis? Who cares? That's not where you're going to win the election. You're going to win the election by getting most of the conservatives, some of the ex-Trumpers, and then in the general, getting a lot of the moderates. Uh, and these people are not going to be important. And well, that's, that's what I think is coming out that DeSantis' campaign strategy was crazy from the start. That's so people who are into Pepe memes may may not be the the swing vote in 
the the forthcoming election. Okay, very productive night last night. I wrote an essay because I was stimulated by conversations I had at synagogue, Your Brain on Love. So I noticed many people take illegal drugs or hallucinogens to alter their mind, and I don't want to mess with my mind in any dangerous way, so I don't drink or drug, but I do like to alter my mind, and so I made a list of about 30 things that I do to alter my mind. So number one, pretty much every morning I take modafinil. Right? It's like the, the boss's best friend. I've talked about it many, many times on the show, so I won't repeat myself. Uh, coffee. I rarely drink coffee, but when I do, it's a powerful stimulant. It really helps your confidence, your concentration, your energy level, like particularly when taken in conjunction with L-theanine, which seems to lengthen the coffee high. So if I take an occasional coffee before 8 a.m., then it has no negative effect on my sleep. Uh, my brain on love, right? Erotic attraction or you know, love you know, for a woman can make you crazy, but just loving the people that you see every day right, just makes you happy. So my brain on love operates from a desire to connect with lovable people and to avoid people who are unlovable. So these posts that, that I wrote overnight right, were inspired by conversations with people that I love, with men that I love. Uh, my brain on gratitude is usually aligned with my best interests. I see reality more clearly. It's hard for me to get too full of myself and inappropriate and over-boundary when I'm filled with gratitude. My brain on Alexander Technique. So I finished my Alexander Technique teacher training in December 2011. Since then, I've largely felt like I'm floating through life. When I walk, I feel like I'm, I'm gliding. I almost never have any muscular pain. I almost never have any back pain. Every part of my body works as it should. Uh, my brain on strain, counter-strain therapy, a.k.a. positional release. By practicing these procedures every day, I let go of tight muscles and occasional muscle spasms and strain. Uh, my brain in a place of awareness. So right now, I'm going to move out. So just there, did you notice any difference in my facial structure when I moved out of judgment into a space of awareness? So right now, I'm just letting go of everything that I think I know. And the quality of my voice changes. quality of my breathing changes. And... As my state changes, my muscular alignment changes, what's going on in my face changes, uh, tension patterns in my body change. E everything frees up when I move into a place of awareness rather than judgment. Now, there's absolutely a time and a place for judgment. I'm not saying, obviously, that I never judge or that we should never judge. But generally speaking, we're better off being in a place of awareness rather than a place of judgment. So a great book on this is by any Murphy Paul 2021 book called The Extended Mind the Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. I love this book. It says people who are more aware of their bodily sensations are better able to make use of their non-conscious knowledge. Mindfulness meditation is one way of enhancing such awareness. So I try to meditate. I probably, it varies sometimes. I meditate every day. Uh, but if I can just do it for five minutes, I, I'm better off. Meditation and mindfulness has been found to increase sensitivity to internal signals. When you're more sensitive to what's going inside of you, you'll be more sensitive to interacting with what's outside of you and can alter the size and activity of key brain structure. My brain on exercise. So I do push-ups, pull-ups, some weights every other day. I walk no less than five miles a day, six days a week. I feel great in my body. When I feel great in my body, my brain, which is in my body, also tends to work great. I think different thoughts. I notice when I am moving compared to when I am sitting, when I am walking or running or swimming. 
So moderate exercise practice for a moderate length of time improves our ability to think both during and after the activity. This is from any Murphy Poor. You have an increase in the capacity to focus attention, to resist a distraction. You have greater verbal fluency, more cognitive flexibility. You have enhanced problem solving and decision making abilities. You have increased working memory, more durable long term memory for what you're learning. There is increased blood flow to the brain, a release of neurochemicals, which increase the efficiency of information transmission in the brain and promote the growth of neurons and brain cells. The beneficial mental effects of moderately intense exercise can last for as long as two hours after the exercise ends. And then there's my brain on gesture. When I am free in my body, allow myself to gesture. Uh, gesture enhances our memory, reinforces the spoken word with visual and motor cues. It can help us understand and express abstract ideas, especially those related to spatial and relational concepts that are inadequately expressed by words. Moving our hands helps our heads to think more intelligently. I think differently when my brain is outside as opposed to being inside, right? So the human organism has become precisely calibrated to the characteristics of the outside environment. Our senses and our cognition are able to easily and efficiently process the particular features present in natural settings. Our minds are attuned to the frequencies of the organic outside world. Right? We have no, much, or not much of an evolutionary adjustment right, to the recent emergence of a world in which we spent almost all of our time inside. So we've got this giant mismatch between the stimuli that we are evolved to process and the sights and sounds that regularly confront our senses because we spent almost all our time inside. That tends to deplete our mental resources. We are left frazzled, fatigued, prone to distraction, simply because of the number of hours we spend in a setting for which we are biologically ill-equipped. My brain on healthy excitement. So I have various intellectual and social projects that I often talk about on this show, and these projects drive me through the day. So whenever a project that consumes me and inspires me and excites me, right, that has a significant effect on my brain. My brain on 12-step, right? By following the principles laid out in the big book, I feel increasingly at ease with myself and with others, and I am no longer at war with myself. Uh, my brain on beef organs, all right? I'm a lifelong vegetarian. As a result, I've had lifelong terrible health. Two years ago, I started taking six beef organ capsules every morning from ancestral supplements, and I feel great. I started feeling great within two weeks. My brain on respect, right? When I treat myself with respect, then allow other people to disrespect me, you know, I put a cap in their ass if they disrespect me, distance myself from people who do not treat me respectfully, right? When I tend to treat other people with respect, my life goes more smoothly and my brain functions better. My brain on decent sleep, right? When I get a decent night's sleep, I feel pretty good. When I get a great night's sleep, I feel amazing. When I'm not sleeping well, my impulse control and my bandwidth go way down. Uh, my brain in nice clothes, all right? I feel great in good-looking clothes. My brain around people, I think different thoughts when I'm around people compared to when I'm alone. Even when I'm alone, much of my thinking is connected to and stimulated by the most important relationships in my life. So one study showed that a major factor in graduate student transformation was their experience of intense social engagement around a body of knowledge, the hours they spent advising, debating with, and recounting anecdotes to one another. Uh, my brain out of the house. Right? According to the Wall Street Journal, people feel more extroverted, more agreeable, more conscientious when they are in other places than their home compared to when they are at home. People tend to feel more disorganized and more chaotic when they are at home. When people are outside their home in social environments, they feel more compassionate, more open-minded, and more kind 
compared to where they are at home. Uh, my brain on generosity, when I serve others, when I'm a moderate, appropriate level of service and help to others, right? not when I'm enabling others. My brain feels more aligned with reality when I'm happy. I naturally want to help people. Right? Happy people help people, hurt people hurt people. Yeah, happy people help people, hurt people hurt people. Wow, that's, that's genius, Forty. My brain on music. I can choose my m music by my mood selection. So check out my YouTube music playlist under playlists on my channel, Luke is back. Uh, my brain on touch. My brain works better when I'm regularly touching and being touched by people I like. And some people, when they touch you, it's the most creepy thing in the world. Ugh. My brain on beauty. When I'm surrounded and frequently encountering beauty, I feel happier. My brain on hope. Right? I can't imagine what it's like to walk around feeling we are doomed. All sorts of people I know are just tied into we are doomed. So it could be AI is dooming us or immigration is dooming us or other technology is dooming us or China and Russia are dooming us or the Democrats are dooming us. Ugh. My brain at rest when I don't feel I need to prove anything to anyone and I don't feel like I need to grab your attention, my brain calms down. My brain on laughter, when I laugh, I tend to rise above my petty self. My brain on harmony, when the different parts of my life and the different facets of my personality aren't at war with each other, it's easier for me to enjoy life. When I'm happy, I like the way my mind works. When I hate myself, my mind becomes a dangerous neighborhood that I don't want to visit alone. My brain on status, my brain works better when I have more status than when I have less status. My brain on a victory. Right? My brain works better when I'm winning rather than losing. So I try to construct my day. So I'm building up wins from my early morning cold shower to my reading, to my writing, to my journaling, to my prayer, to my meditation, to my exercise, my 12-step work, followed by a delicious breakfast while reading my favorite newspapers. Win, 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 win. Just stack up those wins. That's how I try to build my day. My brain on time. Right? My brain works much better when I'm operating on time as opposed to when I am running late. Then my brain on tracking. My brain works better when I'm tracking the key parts of my life, including how I'm spending my time, how I'm spending my money, how I'm earning, right? how my savings are going. Right? So the act of creating a concept map on its own generates a number of cognitive benefits. It forces us to reflect on what we know and then organize it into a coherent structure as we construct the concept map. The process frequently reveals gaps in our understanding of which we were previously unaware. Right, that's my brilliant blog post composed last night called your brain on love the parasites are my brain parasites but given his evil psych take on things it does seem a little bit strange that if we take his argument seriously which is basically the claim that in the modern environment especially at universities and in left-wing dominated areas there's now a dogmatic social justice ideology which has has taken over everything and requires you to say that there's no objective truth, that uh, there's no difference between the sexes, and so on and so forth. Let, let's assume, just for argument's sake, that that exists, and that we're now going to approach things as an evolutionary psychologist. From the point of view of somebody who wants to increase their fitness in that environment, indicating that you sign on to that ideology actually would serve your interest, right? Because you would then be better regarded by your conspecifics in the environment who, who will then be more likely downstream in the long term to meet with you, right? So... It would be adaptive in an evolutionary psychology kind of approach way, I think, if there is a new ideological system which is to control of everything that is dominant in a mm -hmm. culture to adhere to it for your individual fitness. Maybe not beneficial to the society in general because that would suggest that any ideology that exists in a society, you should just simply 
go along with adopt to in order to increase your fitness. But I'm I'm just talking on a purely self-interested genetic spread your genes to the most people in your left-wing enclaves. Yeah, look, it's it's telling that all of his examples of these terrible brain parasites are basically left-wing woke political things that he doesn't like. He, he doesn't he doesn't mention any aspect of MAGA or Trumpism as examples of of mind viruses. And so I guess the second point is that it, it's hard to see it as this this idea that he's got. You can't call it a theory; it's just a metaphor. It doesn't seem to be doing anything apart from functioning as a pejorative. It's just a synonym for stuff he thinks is bad and ideas he doesn't like. Yeah, and I, I think that fits with his role. Is basically he is an evolutionary psychologist, or at least plays in those waters. And on the academic side, that may be where his interests lie. But a lot of his content is heavily culture war oriented and he was one of the figures leaning into trump apologetics pre-election this this interview is from pre-election and we'll we'll see some of them later in the the clips we played but he is best yeah. understood within that ecosystem as a figure approaching dave rubin or scott adams yeah. he plays in those waters with just slightly more academic reader maybe more like jeffrey miller yeah i guess that's the part that i object to like if one is a political partisan and is a culture war warrior that's one thing but I find a very superficial application of what's supposed to be a scientific or intellectual idea when really it's just functioning as a as a bludgeon is that's this kind of scientism that we've we've seen a, a fair bit. It's like just just admit that you're playing politics. Don't don't try to intellectualize your analysis. Well, you accused him of scientism, Matt. So let's let's just hear Gad I explaining thought... why you would be wrong in such accusations. Now I should always I always like to preface that scientists do have epistemic humility. So we recognize that what is true today might become untrue tomorrow in light of new evidence. But at any given point, we do operate under the premise that there is a truth out there to be discovered. There is, for example, a universal human nature. As an evolutionary psychologist, I want to study that. There is uh, certain recurring patterns of how women respond to their ovulatory cycles. Uh, postmodernism completely blows up this edifice of reason because it says that there's only subjective truth. Everybody is bound by their biases, by their subjectivity. There are no objective truths. So there's a few things which are out there, but one thing he mentioned was the objective settled truth of women. I think he's referring to a paper that he wrote, which it, women's behavior in terms of buying makeup or buying various things was connected to their menstrual cycles. And this was a paper you had a quick look at, Chris, hey? Yeah, calories, beauty, and ovulation, the effects of the menstrual cycle on food and appearance-related consumption from 2012. I already know from the replication crisis that a lot of the research related to menstrual cycles and behaviors within the evolutionary psych kind of world is highly questionable about people wearing red dresses to signify their fertility. And there's a lot of shenanigans going on with people defining different windows for fertile periods and the, the kind of standard issues that you had in social psychology with multiple measures and people engaging in p-hacking and, and so on. And so when he made that claim, I was wondering what his paper is like. I know there's a literature that focuses on this topic, but my general impression is that it's not good. So I wondered what his paper is like. I only did a scan of it. It actually took quite a lot of time to find where he mentions the sample size. And this is people completing questionnaires about their buying habits and yeah, people completing questionnaires about themselves, which is the entire field of personality psychology. Right? The entire field of personality psychology is about just people like filling in bubbles, right? just self-reported samples, which I just don't think you can put that much reliability and credibility on, on what people uh, recite about themselves. And, and that is the probably the biggest, fastest growing field of psychology right now, personality psychology, which is entirely built on self-reporting. I don't trust what people report about themselves. All right, this is Gavin, Camille, and Anthony McGuinness on Being Naked. Men had to put on a condom and stick it in a girl's butt to get her pregnant. I thought the condom, because it was called a scumbag, 
Like that's the condom was called a scumbag. Oh, that's the origin of scumbag. Yes, you're a scumbag. It's a oh. used condom. Oh, but I, I thought that. I thought that the 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 bag had scum on it, which is cum. So oh. I thought you needed that to get a girl pregnant, and I didn't even know about a vagina. I had no idea. None of us so did. I thought you had to put on a scumbag and fuck her in the ass, and, and then, and I had these fantasies of what it would be like, uh, and and I, I imagine this girl I liked naked. I'm naked, and we were just naked walking down the street with me with my dick in her ass, <laughs> and we were both just Hello. walking. Yeah, yeah, and people just walking. We're coming out the front door. Going, Congratulations! Yeah, oh look, he's trying to get her pregnant. Yeah. That's awesome. Hope you're married. Like I said, I didn't even know about the shame of it. Like that whole, like you could just walk down the street with your dick in a girl's ass. So various uh, Orthodox women, I, I've known they would only consent to anal sex. They wanted to keep their vagina virginal for their marriage. And you're both walking in sync. And how old were you then? Like 20? Yeah, 22. <laughs> I was probably six yeah. or seven at most. And then I started getting the hang of like, oh, goes and I started hearing about a vagina. Didn't know what the fuck was. <laughs> my my buddy Steve Durand goes, you know how uh, babies are made, right? And I go, yeah, I, I've been wanting to know for a while. And he goes, it's a dink kiss. The woman takes out her penis. Well, they get naked first. Whoa, he's a woman's penis aggressive. <laughs> the man's penis is out, and then the, the dink's kiss. He, he drew it for me. I was like, oh, okay, that makes uh. sense. I think I've, I don't know where my mom's dink is though. I've seen her naked, and she, her you dick did? must be, like, really tucked down or something. How old are you when you saw your mom naked? Oh, my parents were nude. They'd walk around the house nude at all times. Isn't that insane? <laughs> it was so weird. They sleep nude. I've had my dad yell at me nude. You got it, Pontiac! <laughs> From the commercial with his fucking cocaine knob. Oh. <laughs> he beat the shit out of 14-year-olds nude. Oh, I saw that in the movie. Yeah, they were running through yes. the backyards doing, and, and he, he hears someone in his backyard. He just goes, he doesn't go around out the back door. He jumps out the bedroom window, Yeah, runs over to them. They're like, what the fuck? So they're going up, we had a, a pool. They're going up the slide steps to go over the edge, and two of them make it. The last one doesn't make it. Oh. Yanks him down. The kid's 14. He's just with his cock <laughs> hanging down, and it's just like. Can you imagine that? Like pounding the shit oh. of a 14-year-old, completely nude. Naked. <laughs> if that kid was gay, he was cured that night. Oh. Oh, he's never going to want to see a naked man ever again. I, I couldn't imagine the, the parent nude thing. I, there was one instance where uh, my mom was uh, – she had a base the Thanksgiving turkey. That's not a metaphor or something. Calm down. Calm down. Literally, it was Thanksgiving. She had to come out and base the turkey. And she wasn't – she was still all discombobulated. She had her nightgown on. And she comes out and, and, and bends over to open the stove. And I saw some tit, like, <laughs> hanging to this day. Like I'm right now. I'm I'm like I, I, I'm a probably don't like those type of tits now. No, okay. of course hey, not. Type it's, of uh, David, uh, David, long time no talk. How are you, man? Rokashem. So uh, y you went on uh, Ethan Ralph um, a while ago. H how was that experience? Um, yeah, it was almost a month ago before he got in his feud with the uh, Fuentes and. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we kind of had a nice random chat. Um, I, I mentioned to you, like, I, I told them, uh, you know, the connection for you into the streaming and how I got started and about uh, the JQ. And I guess he, originally he reached out. He was presumably looking for somebody to, uh, you know, debate and defend the Jews. So I said I was happy to uh, defend the Jews against anybody. And, uh, you know, so we just had a chat and then he hasn't reached out since then to uh, set up debate. So, you know, we'll see if that happens or not. 
but uh, did any any other topics that you hit on the show? Um, it was like a month ago, so uh, we talked about quite a few things, you know, like streaming in general, and then you know Ben Thorpe came up, and I don't I don't know if you've crossed path with uh, you know Ben Thorpe and his daughter Grace, so uh, it, it kind of got sidetracked to uh, you know this interesting man from Rhode Island and his uh, and his daughter and their kind of uh, interesting relationship that uh, you veered the subject. And then he took callers and had a handful of uh, probably at that point would have been more groiper adjacent people, I guess it was before his fallout. And so I had like, and he had another guy, Michael Cisco, who I'm actually a little bit friendly with. He had been week in review that had been a co-host with him. So uh, nothing necessarily of notice uh have you heard of ben thorpe no grace thorpe no no i haven't and i guess this like catholic father from rhode island with like five or six children with this daughter that uh i mean the the accusations of like incestual relationship but some sort of like weird streaming relationship with uh you know father daughter where you know his daughter's maybe like 20 or something and uh and she's been getting into like dating or, or drama streaming so uh you know they've made the rounds they they they've uh i don't even know how to describe it it's not necessarily that interesting it, you know it's in the genre of uh drama streaming that you know is definitely more popular than uh content or intellectual streaming Okay, so what else have you been uh, working on? I haven't talked to you in a couple of months. Well, I'm organizing my dad's library, so I'm you know, doing a lot of thought about you know, just books, organize, you know, going through books and thinking about books and uh, history. You know, I have a lot more books up for sale now. And I've been doing a lot of research on truth. Like last week I, I was, uh, you know, doing some interesting research on truth and Judaism and, uh, you know, the German idealist the german counter semites last week i was uh doing a deep dive into uh frege and heidegger and uh it was interesting that they're you know, even kant that uh, philosophically that they're they phrase their philosophy directly in opposition to judaism i'm not sure if you've talked much about like heidegger and his uh counter semitism or or you, you got lib frege or kant um, but, uh, you know, I was doing like a deep dive into their philosophy and why counter-Semitism was somewhat essential to their philosophy. Okay. And what surprised you about this? Um, it didn't necessarily surprise me because I had you heard these ideas already in high school. I'd read a little bit of Kant and uh, um you know, I took a course on Heidegger in university, uh, but you're going over it again and looking into truth and a Judaic understanding of truth, not necessarily like counter-Semitism, because if you just put it in terms of group conflict, you know, I think relatively Kant, Frege, and Heidegger are not, you know, they're more like Kevin McDonald types or, or uh, you know, Jared Taylor. They, they weren't... Um, uh, although they did see that there was a fundamental clash of group interest. Um, but on their conception of philosophy and truth, I tend to agree with them. And 
that uh, there is a fundamental different way of looking at the world and the truth concept as a Jew, how we see things fundamentally clashes with this, uh, you know, German idealism in terms of, uh, you know, what is truth. How so? What, what are the major differences? Um, well, Frege, who's like the father of modern logic, and we call him like a Neoplatonic in, in, uh, in terms he wants to say that logic is non-material and exists separate from mind like truth is discovered and uh not necessarily like the empiricism of the scientific method and he puts that in opposition to a judeo a judeo truth and and so I, I was reading the judeo text and saying like you're like uh i mean how, how would you consider the concept truth in judaism if we just established uh what does truth mean in Judaism? And then as opposed to the rationalist and the logicist and the scientist that was developed in Germany, why that has to be in direct opposition to our conception of truth. Well, truth in Judaism as it functions is whatever's functional. All right. Uh, truth, truth is what the, the, the rabbis say it is, which will vary often from, from generation to generation. So, I think uh, Judaism, unlike any other world religion of which I'm aware, is constantly like uh, censoring the the texts of uh, previous generations. So, uh, primarily, truth is that which encourages people to observe Torah commandments. So that that's the primary functional meaning of truth in Judaism. It's just incredibly a pragmatic, flexible statement. It's it's uh, it's something that the rabbis will wield in fifteen different directions to try to encourage people to observe the commandments. Yeah, I mean, if you want to take it philosophically, I, I would separate it into three different elements of truth in Judaism. And there's first in the biblical law, which is usually phrased in the opposite of truth and falseness, you know, like uh, one of the Ten Commandments, do not bear false witness, and a whole bunch of commandments against false falsehood, most often related to com uh, commercial penalty, sometimes testimony in terms of damage to the other person, where, where it more focuses on falseness and avoiding falseness. And I, I'm not, are you familiar with the correspondence theory of truth? I don't think so. So there, there's philosophical schools of truth, like the coherence theory, the pragmatic, uh, the correspondence. The correspondence is the main theory, which is basically saying there's an external reality and then there's the reality in our mind. And truth is when the correspondence is accurate between what actually is and what exists in our mind or what is said. And so from a Judeo law perspective, falseness is when a person takes advantage of the situation for finance, false witness, um, you know, um, misinformation in order to say something like it's not in order to get financial uh, benefit. So there's tens of laws, there's large sections of the Torah that deal with this uh, you know, falseness. And then there's the character trait of truthfulness that where a person should be honest. And honest generally would be this correspondence where a person doesn't take ill-gotten gain and uh, you know that a person could lie and be false in order to achieve ill-gotten gain so that's an extremely 
important concept in um, Judaism, right? Uh, sure. I haven't, I haven't thought deeply about it. Yeah, I mean, there's countless laws all over the Torah from Moses till modern day halakha about, uh, you know, dealing honest in your transactions and that, uh, you know, lying would be an example of um, ill-gotten gain, uh, usually in terms of financial. Then there's, uh, you know, the expression broke dynamis, you know, blessed the true judge. I don't know what, what would be your conception of, uh, you know, when something bad happens and there's actually a blessing, you know, broke Hashem, Kenu Malakoyim, broke dynamis. Although usually the person just says the expression without a full formal blessing of broke dynamis. But, you know, I assume you hear that often. Maybe you even say it yourself. Yeah, it just means that uh, whatever happens is God's will. Yeah, but the expression is the true judge. And so there's a concept of truth that uh, my conceptions relate to the problem of suffering and that... Uh, you know, the, the Epicurean trilemma of uh, uh, God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful, uh, then how does evil occur? So uh, the statement broke dynamis is in reference to say that God is all, is, is an affirmation that God is all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful in whatever happened, even though um, would apparently be bad, you know, like a death or, or tragedy, suffering, uh, that the true judge, God's true purpose is still beneficial and for our good in an act of uh, loving kindness. And that's the sentiment behind, uh, you know, Brooke Dynamis. Okay, the person maybe died. However, um, you know, there's an afterlife and maybe they're going to heaven. Or, uh, you know, the, like, uh, you know, God forbid the person's sick. However, you know, God's the true judge in the big in the scheme of things, even though God is all powerful and this suffering didn't have to happen. Um that there's some greater conception and, you know, even, you know, God forbid uh, the theology of the Holocaust would be, you know, certainly God had the power to, to uh, stop it or change it. And so if God allowed it to occur. There has to be some sort of ultimate um, benefit or purpose behind it. And that's the sentiment of your know, broke dynamics. I'm not sure if you have a take on that. Well, I, I think it's pretty similar in Christianity too, that uh, all things work together, you know, for those who love God, that God's going to, you know, make everything right. So I, I'm not sure why that that uh, perception would be so opposed by German idealist philosophers. Well, it's not. It's the third conception that I think is the most opposed. And uh, by saying that it specifically uses the word true, and it you know, basically means there's some sort of underlying meaning that we can't understand. So even though it appears... That like it can't be true. This person's suffering, and God is all you know, in that. Uh, but you know, God's the true judge. God knows what's happening. I trust uh, you know that God is all powerful, all good, and all knowing, even though my perception can't see that. Uh, so the third conception of truth in Judaism is this: um, you know, the Elu, the Elu, Divrelu, Kim Kaim. These and these are the words of the living God, and the partnership between the Jewish people and God in the purpose of humanity and that uh, God chose the Jewish people to reveal certain truths or to bring mankind forward towards a utopian messianic age and that truth is intrinsically interconnected with the Jewish people and the Jewish people ourselves are some form of uh, bearers indication of truth in the material realm. 
and that's more theological. So I say the first one where I mentioned, you know, just the your truth in terms of law, in terms of honesty, is generic. And the second one of the colloquial expression, Brooke Dynamis, that's more theological. But the third one is also theological, but it's a fundamental tenet of Judaism that, you know, the concept of the chosen people and God's will and manifestation and, and even called truth being caught up together with the Jewish people. Okay, and so obviously they're not going to respond well to this conception that uh, truth is revealed through the Jewish people, through an outgroup. Yeah, so I, I would say they're correct in that, in the sense that if the they want to develop an independent method of science of knowledge that is, uh, you know, so to say, objective, mind independent that's not based on anything other than empiricism or uh, um, logic, rationalization. And the Judeo concept of truth is fundamentally, um, if you want to say irrational or in opposition to what they were trying to develop. And, and, and then their perception, like uh, Nietzsche or I guess these Germans who were trying to set a direction for the Germanic people that they chose the Judeo concept of truth to be what was in opposition to what they were trying to do. And many of them were also anti-Christian, although like Kant, I guess, is a liberal Christian who, like a reformed Christian, uh, who still holds on to his Christianity later. Heidegger is, is uh, adamantly anti-Christian and maybe Frege is somewhat like neutral on um, Christianity, but I guess they would see the, you know, kind of like Adam Green, that uh, Christianity is uh, based on these Judeo concepts, and that's what they're trying to get away away from. And when they set their theories, they specifically make it in opposition to the Judeo concept. And it's important for them themselves when they advance their theory that of you know anything that they choose to put in opposition to, it's uh, the Judeo conception. Yeah, so in, in other words, there's a lot of fancy philosophizing by people who want to see their own in-group as being number one. So for, for a German, it's understandable that they d develop antipathy, whether philosophical or otherwise, to some other in-group being number one. So Germans didn't want to make Jews the, the number one in-group that determines truth and meaning and purpose in life, and Jews obviously are going to put their own experience at the, the center of the universe. Every in-group basically puts their own group and their own experience at the center of the universe, and then they develop, depending on their capabilities, you know, fancy or less fancy philosophical and, and rational arguments for why their group is the very center of the universe. Yeah, I, that's not what I'm trying to say, because no, I don't think that's the case, in, 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 at least for uh, Kant, Frege, and uh, Heidegger. They're not necessarily German supremacist, that, uh, you know, that would be more like a Christian, a new Israel where they're saying that they're, or, uh, but, but no, I, I don't think, I mean, all three of them do not appear to be German supremacists. They do are counter Semites. They do think that there's a group battle between Judaism and Germany, but I don't think any of them are claiming I mean, there is some claim that there's a Germanic spirit that's more rational, but I don't think it's a supremacist claim. That's the It's not flipping the Judeo concept onto them. It's just saying that the Judeo concept is foreign to 
reality. And when they're trying to set out reality, reality is independent. I mean to say like my father's, I've heard my father, I use the expression sometimes, even Netanyahu used it, but a lot of scientists, like I'm just a speck of nothing. Um, you know, truth is independent of mind. It's independent of humanity. At best, we discover it and correspond to it as opposed to us being the bearers of truth. So I would put that in differentiation. So they're not claiming to be like a new Israel where they're superior. They're just saying that uh, that's what Jews think. And however, there is still truth that could be discovered more through the scientific method. Okay, so uh, what's been going on with your streaming life? Uh, what have you been doing over the past two months aside from your appearance on Ethan Ralph? Nothing. You know, so I, I've been doing a lot of uh, research on truth. You know, just the, the last week I got into uh, the Judeo concept and, and um, these kind of uh, disputes in mathematics and logic and up to World War II. And uh, you've been doing a lot of philosophical research. So I've kind of given up on streaming um, in terms of networking. I have a, a small amount of people that follow my content and has it became uninteractive. So, you know, I told Ethan Ralph, I'll be happy to defend the Jews. And I was more kind of straightforward. Like I told him, I didn't care who he's, you know, anybody, if it's a random nobody or a big name. And uh, I tried to be more straightforward and, and, and not necessarily uh, like a, a spokesman for Judaism, but just a person who loves the Jewish people is willing to uh, stand up for them, but also in a way that I accept group difference and group conflict, which is uh, typically not a general Judeo most people who defend the Jews don't necessarily admit that there is your reason for group conflict, um, but nothing came of that. So we'll see if anything comes of that. Um, and whatever so I, happened to Quantum Jen? You used to do uh, weekly shows with Quantum Jen. Is she? What, what is she doing these days? I don't see her live streaming. Yeah, she's supposed to be doing a debate, maybe on modern day debates, but but. You know, she's on the other side of the world in uh, New Zealand. So we, I would stream um, Sunday night and it would be Monday morning for her. And she had a scheduling conflict and uh, we tried moving it around. And so it, it you know, didn't make sense to have week in review moving around. And uh, you're trying to find a new time or do it Monday or Thursday. So I just took it solo and I guess she just stopped streaming. So, uh, you know, she, she hasn't done any solo streams. I'm not sure if she had, if she, you know, had, had Mondays available again for her, which is Sunday night for me, if she would want to continue Week in Review. So, uh, yeah, it's been four months now. Uh, four months? Yeah, almost four months that uh, we haven't done Week in Review together. And, uh, yeah, I've messaged just a handful of small messages back and forth. So I, I don't know if she has uh, plans on continuing streaming at all. And uh, Charles Moskowitz, do you know what's going on with him these days? He's streaming a little bit. Um, he's He's got another Friday regular person, I think Michael Shaw. Um, you know, he's on Rumble. He has had a handful of uh, guests, some of them bigger than others. So, you know, but he's still around, although not as much. I think he gave up on, uh, you know, like he'd wanted to make a daily in an interactive show. And I think he gave up on it. It just wasn't working. And uh, we also had a scheduling type thing where we we're like moving around and he was trying to like 
get it to be popular and and uh you know it was going to be the new year and we were going to reschedule and we never did and so i didn't push him to do it because you know god forbid we weren't going anywhere and he likes to kind of like preach and say the same things over and over and again i was like you know charles no one's watching you're just talking to me so like uh you know there's no audience so you know for this this kind of like repetitive but like you know, like for him to go into these like rants or something like he had some sort of audience that uh so uh i didn't find the conversations particularly beneficial to myself because the you know, like i said he was like preaching to an audience that wasn't there and uh so i'm not sure you know sam he's still around doing occasional interviews uh every few weeks he had a uh, course this guy Corsi on who's like i guess like a big alex jones guy and jay dyer and he has some politicians or authors occasionally but uh he had tried off and on for a few years to like you know get into it and have a daily show and have callers and build up his audience uh which he wasn't successful so uh but but i think he you know, like he occasionally gets interviews and he's still on kind of like the trump preaching train so it's like you know i was just trying to talk with him have a conversation and he'd go into these like long rants about like trump and you know why you know that's because you know because because of trump and because the election fraud or you know whatever his points or various things that got him uh you know off of youtube so uh you know that that that's why that ended and that that was at the beginning of uh this year so that was like eight months ago he was he was playing this like you know another like re rebranding of trying to do a daily show and we were going to schedule it and then he never did it so uh you know we we did weekly for almost two years and uh you know so i still have his contact um but i'm not sure if that you know just wasn't going anywhere and is there anything else going on in your life are you working out have you taken up any new hobbies are you joining any new social groups have you gone back to shul anything else new in your life yeah, I went back to shul for the first time, not for services. They started in the summer, like a lecture series of doctors. And so I had bumped into this one professor at uh, the kosher restaurant and, and he invited me. I said, he's speaking in shul. So I went and it was a, a few part series. I went to the second part. I missed the third part because it was just like a virtual professor from Yeshiva University, Einstein School of Medicine. Uh, I planned to go to the fourth part. So I saw some of the familiar faces. The rabbi came up and he's like, where you been? You should come around. You're invited for Shabbos, although I still didn't make it in for Sabbath. So, uh, um, but yeah, the rabbi was friendly, invited me, so I'm, I'm welcome to come. And, uh, but uh, no, no new social circles. I haven't really been doing anything. I've been doing a lot of research. I've been really working hard on organizing my dad's library and uh, my business selling books. So I have uh, you know, a lot more stuff listed and, uh, you know, so just putting the focus into my research, working for my dad, building up our business, organizing his books and uh, selling. And uh, are you staying off the marijuana? Yeah, I haven't touched marijuana. I don't know if it's been a year and a half now. So, you know, thank God. Um, I almost like Tish above, like I used to get sick on Tish above and. Uh, yeah, I could feel like the I could feel the dirt in my lungs. You know, like on fast days mm -hmm. especially so um you know like it's been a year and a half like i didn't feel any of that uh you know dirtiness um in my lungs on on the fast i mean i still had difficulty fasting i was laying down i felt weak and uh but uh you know like i used to be able to feel 
the dirtiness of the smoking caused on my lungs, especially on fast days, Tisha B'Av and Yom Kippur. So thank God, uh, you know, a year and a half without doing that at all. And uh, are there times that you feel more masculine than other times? Do you have any thoughts on on when you, you feel masculine? Are there things that you need to do? Are there mindsets you need to adopt? Are there practices that you need to integrate into your life? Like, what does it mean for, for Duvid to be masculine? Um, well, I'm back to coaching chess. Um, you know, I work out. In fact, I, I've been, I, I got up to 50 sit-ups. Uh, I, you know, like on uh, a few days, I try to do like 100 push-ups and 100 sit-ups. And just this last few weeks, I did 50, you know, sets of 50. And I'd started doing, like, you know, like, uh, I mean, it took me a while in uh, push-ups. So I th- I'm at, in some extent, the best health I've been in a few years, especially you know, I'm doing my dad's library. I was moving around boxes and I go swimming. Um, I don't like masculine in that sense. Cause I, I've kind of isolated myself. Um, you know, maybe like chess coaching and, uh, you know, a few people I try to give good advice to mostly African Americans in Detroit, mostly about taking their education seriously and, uh, you know, basic, uh, I mean, mostly I just teach them how to play chess. Uh, but your know, chess is symbolic to life advice. And when it gives into life advice, you know, it's more just like thinking about what they do, making good decisions. And, uh, you know, cause most of them are youth. It's, uh, you know, academic and, uh, you know, coursework if they're elementary or middle school, mostly like math and science. And if they're in university about, uh, you know, going to university and, uh, the type courses that they're going to take. So, uh, yeah, may- maybe like some, I don't call it masculine in that sense. Like, uh, um, I'm not sure if I call that masculine in a sense, but I think my advice is generically more masculine because I'm more uh, matter of fact. You're like, this is the work, this is how it's going to be. You know, you got to do it. Okay. So I, I jotted down, Mosey Shabbat, some notes on what I think it means to be a man uh, today. And so, number one on my list was mastery. Man should have mastery of himself, he should drink only what he chooses to drink, eat only what he chooses to eat, watch only the amount of TV that is aligned with his best interest, to put in the type of performance at work and with his family that makes him feel good about himself. A man who regularly compulsively participates in his own destruction is not a man. A man should not only have mastery over himself, he should also have mastery over many different parts of life, including his education, his profession, and his family, chiefly protecting and providing for them. A man lacking in mastery is not a man. Any thoughts on the component of mastery in masculinity? Yeah, I would essentially agree. I think, I mean, that's the perky Elvis, like who is a strong man, one who conquers his urges. And yeah, I mean, a man, responsibility and uh, you're taking care of duty and obligation uh, independent of uh, our own desires, not just running after uh, your self-control. Yeah, I mean, I essentially agree with that. And that's why I said I, my advice chess coaching i would say is generically masculine because usually i'm telling people like you gotta make good decisions take control uh, think uh, long term as opposed to you know just doing whatever you want makes yourself feel good yeah so thinking about the different masculinities of jacob and esau to i suspect most non-jews esau would seem the most masculine because he was a hunter and he was much more physically uh, dominant, but uh, on the other hand, Jacob was much more tied into 
the legacy of his family. And so from, from a Jewish perspective, Jacob was the, the greater man because he had a, a greater commitment to his own family. He also engaged in more long-term thinking, you know, what would be the consequences of this or that. So Jacob was, was more astute at uh, planning. So any thoughts on the different masculine types of when it comes to Jacob and Esau? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would you know say they're both representations of masculinity or to say if you're saying Esau has a feminine aspect to it or you're saying they're two different models no, of I said that from I said from a non-Jewish perspective Esau would definitely seem more of a man because he had more physical ability he was a master hunter and Jacob was duplicitous but from a Jewish perspective Esau is more of a man because I mean Jacob is more of a man because Jacob is more dedicated to his family and he was more thoughtful about the consequences of what uh, what he was saying, doing, and, and committing to in carrying on the, the legacy of his family. Um, yeah, I would say those are both models of masculinity. I mean, you might be correct in terms of common perception, um, but you like I would say like intellectualism, math, and science are also prototypical masculine things. And but I mean certainly there's an element of uh, physicality, you know, duty. I mean Andrew Tate uh, obviously like uh, it, it's ironic the the red pill. Uh, I don't know if you follow like Andrew Tate or, or like uh, fresh, fresh and fit or the the I mean it seems the biggest thing in streaming now. Um, and you know like ironically the red pill, which when I was in Israel I think we talked about like was referring to like becoming a baltjuva. You know, like the secular Jew who realized that uh, secularism uh, and, you know, like the, taking the red pill was like becoming a Balshuva and uh, going to Israel uh, to uh, the alt-right where taking the red pill was uh, somewhat like, uh, you know, counter-Semitism or the failure of liberal America um, to now, now the red pill is almost exclusively referred to uh, like dating in the manosphere. And, uh, you know, if you want to put like, Andrew Tate is a modern day Esau. Um, and you said, well, he's masculine. He works out, he fights, and you know, he's busy with uh, dating and having sexual relations with women, which uh, you know, is essentially like, well, I'm masculine, I'm a man. And the ultimate fulfillment of masculinity is sexual relations with women. And uh, you know, as opposed to the opposite of the ultimate form of masculinity is restraint and self control. And uh, you know, marrying only one woman, being concerned with family, and but but I, I would say that like as opposed to that possible conception, why I don't disagree with you, because I, I do think intellectualism is given some sort of feminine. But but personally, from a Judaic point of view, I think that uh, intellectualism is actually masculine, and that's the two paths of uh, your Jacob of long-term planning, self-restraint, uh, intellectualism is the path of masculinity as opposed to the Esau path of physicalism, masculinity. Now, is there a significance to the type of kippah you, you wear? You've got 10 to 15. Is there a meaning behind which type of kippah you put on in a certain circumstance? No, I mean, they're basically all like color coordinated. So I have, uh, I, I basically have two of multiple colors. And so I have one, Ones that are um, dirty that I wear when I do when like I, I would sweat, 
and then ones that I, and they're almost all like felt, the felt yarmulkes. And, you know, I have some that are corduroy and some that are plain and, you know, say some that have gotten dirty over the years from sweating in. So if I'm going to be doing physical labor where I'm sweating, I will wear one that's already dirty, um, but not necessarily any significance to any of them. Okay, great. Here are some more notes I made on what I think it means to be a man. A man Did you have any feedback on what I said about um, intellectual, like logic, math, and science being a masculine trait? I, I agree, but I didn't have anything to add. But in opposition to what you said about Esau. I didn't have anything Jacob. to add. If I had something oh. to add, I'd add it. I'm sorry, I okay. didn't have anything. Um, a man should be at ease with reality, including hierarchy and rules. A man realizes that every community has hierarchy and rules. A man recognizes when it's appropriate for him to lead, when he should follow, when he should sing, when he should dance, when he should work, when he should make romance. So man should be at ease with reality, including with hierarchy and rules, taking direction or giving direction as appropriate. Any thoughts on this as a component of masculinity, David? Yeah, I would put that, you know, kind of like Halakha in the Shulchan Aruch and Halakha in Judaism is a lot of it's not applicable to women. And, you know, the concept of, you know, like in Ukraine and international diplomacy, they say rules-based order. But to say men are maybe uniquely, as opposed to women or children, uh, at least in classical Jewish law, capable of following a rules-based order. And, uh, you know, everybody has their own Shulchan Aruch, everybody's house has a set of rules, every club has a decorum. And in that sense, like that there could be an arbitrary or set of norms and a man could be a civilized man as opposed to Esau who's uncivilized, like Jacob, the model for the civilized man um, is capable of controlling self-control and comporting himself to a set of rules to act appropriately in a situation. And uh, I don't know if women are less capable or at least classically in Judaism less expected of being able to do that. I think men naturally uh, are more attuned to following hierarchy and rules, while I think women are more relational. Yeah, so it may be like like a synagogue or, you know, generally clubs were all males, you know, like Freemasonry, mm -hmm. the Royal Society, uh, golf clubs, you know, they're all males and they ha had... Uh, a set of uh, decorum and rules that might be different in different places, like an Orthodox synagogue or, or, you know, various places. And if you're a sophisticated man, you could be a member of different clubs and you could know the various rules of decorum and rules in different places and act accordingly. I mean, like to say that there's a standard of behavior and because self-control is a masculine quality that a man could comport himself with a set of rules and, uh, so I don't, I don't know if you're if that's a different way of saying the same thing you're saying. Yeah, no, I think it's it, it yeah it's a different way of saying the same thing. I I agree with that. Uh, next point on my list: men are much more physically aggressive than women. So ninety five percent of men are going to be physically stronger than women their age. So a man is much more at ease with aggression, physical aggression. He should channel it in productive ways, obviously, such as working out. Uh, men love competition. Women generally don't like competition. Men love stock winners and losers. Uh, women don't usually like that type of competition. So to, to be a man generally means to enjoy competition, to enjoy a challenge, to recognize when you're winning or losing, and 
recognize that one of your responsibilities usually is a willingness to protect those that you love, to recognize the world is filled with dangerous men, and recognizing that part of reality and taking steps to protect both yourself and those you love from the dangerous men who are out there. Any thoughts on this aspect of masculinity? Yeah, I mean, maybe you have to clarify to say, if you're saying self-control is a uniquely masculine quality, that men are stronger and more physical, have a duty to protect. And, you know, I guess like, you know, just, just Pearly, Pearl Davis, if you've, you've heard the big name recently, um, have you seen her yet? No. The um, redheaded woman from Chicago, London, that's been doing podcasting on Piers Morgan, did that song about Jews. She oh, got over a million. Yeah, yeah. They call her the female Andrew Tate and said yeah. that women shouldn't vote. Um, but if she had a statistic, she was you know, saying that actually most cases of violence are actually instigated by women. It's saying that the men do the damage. But in terms of like spousal fights, or even abuse that uh, that even over fifty percent of them are actually instigated by women. It just comes like to injury or arrest. It's the man who's going to be uh, arrested. But but I would say that no. I mean, uh, uh, the masculine quality is self control. So uh, uh, it's the the feminine that doesn't have as much control. So if the woman gets angry, she's more lack, likely to act on the anger than a man who gets angry. And at least if you're talking in the ideal masculine quality of self-control, so like obviously like, yeah, man should be physical, a man should be able to fight and protect, although a man should be controlled and rational in his physicality. Uh, although, you know, that's the decline of ma of Western man or, or you know, men in general today, that we don't have a code of chivalry or decorum and a man being in control of his anger, uh, you know, action is uh, quite rare these days. Okay, my next point is that uh, a man should spend most of his spare time with other men. Like men need a tribe, men need other men. The more you have in common with other men, the more likely you are to bond with them. So it's not a weakness or a flaw or a pathology or a sin to prefer to be around people like yourself. Most people benefit, including men, from a strong in-group identity. So men are kind of predisposed by their genes to a tendency to fornicate and to fight. So men need male-only communities and spaces that elevate these basic instincts in healthy directions. Uh, men around women are frequently watered-down versions of themselves, kind of a watered-down masculinity that is acceptable to a feminist-run HR department. So what do you think about this idea that uh, for most men, they need to spend probably most of their spare time either with family or with male-only groups? Yeah, you know, I had a... I was streaming a, a few months ago. There's this minor streamer. She's been on Modern Day to Date. She calls herself like Not Your Everyday Ashley. And she's in Florida and she does kind of like dating drama, but she also does debate. And I was on her post stream and she uh, she was with this other woman, Nina. If uh, people heard of her, she was like used to live together with this new guy, John Zerka. Who I guess is also like a, you know popped up in big streaming and fresh and fit or whatever. And, th and there's this other guy who's half Jewish, Israeli, uh, playing with fire. Alex, uh, who does kind of like porn and, and dating coaching. I'm not sure if any of these names are familiar to you or your audience. Um, but so I, I was on an open panel stream with the smaller streamer woman, and I was telling I was arguing in favor of what you're saying, like men need all masculine spaces 
and I was making the exact point that you were making about hierarchy. And so I was saying that, you know, and I would say personally, most of my most productivity were in all masculine spaces, either yeshiva or New York in terms of business, like I day traders, all male office. Most of the places I worked with uh, Orthodox Jews, it was always all male. And um, I thought there was a few elements of productivity that, like you were talking, men naturally form a hierarchy, and usually the hierarchy is based on expertise. And so like if I'm in a day trading office or if we're talking about something, men will usually um, find who's the best at it and then let that person have uh, at least a, a temporal form of management or power in that situation. Um, but when you put women into it, then it always, it changes the pecking order and then it always comes to relations and sexual desire and it decreases productivity that men naturally have in uh you know someone say that if i go to the gym i'm even though i might be much educated and wealthier or uh you know refined than uh, my trainer i'm going to listen to the trainer and you know if we play sports uh, the guy who's the best is there's going to be a natural pecking order uh, but also like i said if you go to uh, the mortgage office or the stock office or yeshiva um, I will take command from a geeky guy and I will let the pecking order take its natural place. And I will let, you know, a guy that I could beat up easily or, you know, you know whatever, uh, ba basically instruct me and take charge. And uh, I think that a healthy male situation is like that, where all situations, why are we gathered? What's the purpose of the gathering? And there'll be a natural hierarchy formed around that purpose. And women always change that and interfere with it and uh ruin so to say this uh, development of expertise yeah and yeah no one understood my point and like even like this half israeli guy the dating coach who was saying like you know, you know was saying like I mean, he might take instruction but he was saying like the andrew tate or like the, the high value male the alpha male and you know it's like it was like uh you know like no the geek is never the alpha and i was saying like no like i, I like i've been in a lot of places where the alpha was a geek like the alpha was a guy who like guaranteed would have lost if a fight broke out, but it just wasn't a situation uh, that a fight was going to break out. So, uh, um, but if a woman was in the place that would change the circumstance because how the woman views who the high value male or the alpha is, uh, the men are more likely to form in competition for the woman in terms of who the woman wants to have sexual relations with, as opposed to a more practical functioning of what's the purpose of the gathering and let's form the hierarchy temporally based on expertise for the purpose. Okay, my next point is that uh, generally speaking, a man isn't self-promoting, right? A, a man lets other people praise him. A man doesn't need to praise himself. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think like humility, I mean, there's like the Asia style, but yeah, the, the natural humility where, um, I mean, I think maybe women also, I'm not sure if necessarily, but yeah, I mean, a proper man is, their greatness is demonstrated by results. And it's usually underspoken. You know, if a, like I said, yeah. like whatever the expertise, if you're rich, you don't need to tell people how rich you are. If you're strong, if you're a good fighter, um, you know, talk is cheap. And uh, I don't think, you know, yeah, probably women are more gossipy in that sense. Uh I mean, unfortunately, men have been so 
emasculated or, or the fallenness of our generation that, uh, you know, like your Andrew Tate, you know, example of Esau or something that's constantly telling everyone how great he is. And even like Donald Trump, who's constantly telling you how great he is. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's unfortunate that uh, I would agree with you, but it, it's uh, rare that that's the reality, at least in uh, our fallen state. Yeah. Um, a man doesn't placate more than is absolutely necessary, right? A, a man, generally speaking, doesn't beg other people for things. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like begging is a female quality. Uh, flattery is also a female quality in that sense. So like, uh, you know, so so like you get what you deserve uh, in terms of like uh, effort and uh, kissing ass or something. I mean, there's a lot of male kiss asses, but in the ideal form, you know, you know I mean, definitely, uh, you know, like you put in the work and it's uh, if something's unfair or something, you say that this isn't fair. But that's not a case of uh, begging or placating. Yeah. Uh, I had one more point here that, uh, let me see. Uh, so a man should have appropriate levels of fear. Like you wouldn't want you know, a man to have excessive fear. He should just have appropriate levels of fear. Oh, yeah, this is my point. Almost every man has had the experience of being punched, punched in the face, and therefore has learned not to say certain fighting words, right? Men understand what fighting words are. So ha have you had the experience of being punched hard for something you've said and learned from that experience? Yeah, I went to public school. I got punched hundreds of times. You know, I went to school for mostly African-American. So, you know, God forbid I got punched for doing nothing also a bunch of times let alone for, uh, you know, uh, putting, putting up when I, when I, when I, uh, shouldn't. And, and, you know, my father was, uh, you know, disciplinary and also in that sense. So, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, although maybe, you know, somewhat among Jews, you might find that, you know, opposite, there's a lot of guys who have gotten away, so to say, with not being punched, you know, cause they lived in protective environments so to say that, uh, you know, like, okay, I won't, you know, as opposed to someone maybe who went to yeshiva or even to modern Orthodox schools may have been, may actually be less likely to have had that happen to them. Yeah. I'm uh, often stunned that, that the things that come out of a woman's mouth that men, that a man would know is a, a fighting words, but I would expect, and I would hope that most women have not had the experience of being punched in the face. And therefore, they're they're not as disciplined in the things that they say. I remember, I, I think I told Brundle, like, and in, in, you know, like, uh, you know, I was in New York and I, I was doing like gangster my, my management and party promoting, and we had some rich geeky, I don't really call them geeky Jews, but like you know, kids of very wealthy Jews that uh, had a lot of money, and we defended them, and. Uh, they took advantage of that. And, and there's a certain extent to, um, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's masculine, but, but I mean, certainly as someone, and we talked about that quite a bit of, you know, being, you know, a convert or a Balchuva, where you play the role of Jews leaving the Orthodox fold to, uh, you know, the party scene or, or various things. So I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, like that was an extremely common thing among Orthodox Jews that like, you're just like blurting or saying things like, dude, you're going to get beat up. 
and uh you know saying like well haven't you ever and, and saying like no these guys have never been beaten up and you know saying like i've been to public school i got beaten up uh you know like uh periods of my life i got beat up like every day of my life for months you know because i just was bullied and and uh, I, you know my bullies were way stronger than me there's nothing i could have done about it but uh yeah i think within orthodox judaism on the you know the positive side there might be protection against bullying especially physical bullying that uh, this element of blurting or saying things that would get you beat up and then also kind of like a jonathan greenblatt type thing you know maybe jonathan greenblatt's never been punched in the sense like uh you know like like okay like, i'm smart like you know like uh there's kind of the jewish attitude of, of saying like you know like you'll you'll like you know you'll be sorry like you know like touch me i'll sue you and i think a lot of jews not, not necessarily just jews but a lot of jews actually do like to press that line and maybe get away with it for most of their life i mean maybe you go to synagogue with people like that who you're thinking like yeah there's probably a lot of people who would like to hit them but uh they've been smart enough or protected enough in a way that they they haven't been hit and uh um and i've served in you know roles like that where i, I i've protected people like that and defended their behavior where that were you know, like if me and my protectors weren't around like they would have been beaten up but uh, they were paying for it and i was there and we made sure they didn't get beaten up even though they probably deserved to okay i also did a blog post last night on my brain and my favorite ways to alter my brain so many people i know take illegal drugs including hallucinogens to alter their mind i don't like to do that but i made a list of my favorite ways to alter my mind so one is modafinil, which I've talked about many times. Uh, I occasionally drink coffee. So when I do, it's a very powerful stimulant uh, love. So when I have erotic or romantic love, it you know, drives my brain crazy. But just having a great deal of affection for the people I see every day makes me happy. And then my brain operating from that place of connecting and interacting with people I love, it changes the way my, my brain works, as opposed to when I'm constantly interacting with people I hate then my, my brain turns very negative. Uh, when my brain's filled with gratitude, I find that my brain usually aligns with my best interests and I see reality more clearly. It's harder for me to get too full of myself when I'm grateful. I appreciate my brain on a state of awareness rather than judgment. My brain works better when I'm exercising. My brain works better when I'm using gestures. My brain works better when I get lots of time outside, when I have healthy intellectual and social excitement. Uh, my brain works better when I take my beef organ capsules every morning. Uh, my brain works better when I treat myself and others with respect. My brain works better when I have a good night's sleep. My brain works better when I'm dressed in nice clothes. And my brain works better when I'm around people who I like. So also my brain works better when I get out of the house. I find that, yeah, I'm probably like most people, more extroverted, more agreeable, more conscientious when I'm in other places. Well, when I'm at home, I tend to get more disorganized and chaotic. When I'm outside the house, I tend to become more compassionate and open and kind compared to when I'm at home. My brain on generosity, when I'm helpful to others but not enabling them, my brain feels more aligned with reality. My brain on music, right? I can choose my mood by the type of music that I listen to. Uh, my brain on touch, my brain works better when I'm regularly touching and being touched by people I like. My brain on beauty, when I'm surrounded by beauty, I tend to feel happier. My brain on hope. So I can't imagine what it's like to walk around feeling that I am doomed or that we are doomed. My brain at rest when I 
calm down from the need to prove anything to anyone or to grab people's attention. My brain calms down. My brain on laughter. When I laugh, I tend to rise above my petty self. My brain on harmony. When the different parts of my life are working together, my brain works better. My brain on status. My brain works better when I have more status as compared to when I have less status. My brain on victory. My brain works better when I'm consistently winning rather than consistently losing my brain on time my brain works better when i'm on time as opposed to when i'm running late and my brain on tracking my brain works better when i'm tracking all the different elements of my life that are important to me i'm staying on top of things uh david any thoughts on different things that alter your mind alter your brain any thoughts yeah, i mean just the first point that that you would use the brain as opposed to mind i mean because the brain is a physical organ and maybe so okay your brain if you believe you're like a physicalist or evolutionist that the brain produces your mind, but uh, your brain is just a physical organ. So I, I thought it was, I, I found that at least interesting that because I wouldn't use the expression my brain, maybe I'd use the expression um, my mind. And if you are using it, like in terms of saying, well, the brain in terms of your physical organ, it, it, most of those things are probably reduced to stress when you're, when your body's in stress, it uh, takes away from or or health in general. And uh, so I, I would probably try to differentiate some of those things that would be purely related to physicality as opposed to well, some the of mind, those. The mind is, occupies a physical body. The mind is no less physical than the brain. They all operate within a physical body. Well, that's a... Uh, you know, like a worldview that, that I disagree with. So that's, a, you know, the, I mean, I understood. Wait, so where meant. do you think your brain and or your, where do you think your mind operates from if it's not operating from within your physical body? Well, in the spiritual realm that the brain, that my mind is not, a, uh, my mind is, you know, dualistic uh, operating in a separate realm, the spiritual realm. Yeah, as opposed to completely my, my disconnected body. from your body. Wait, if I say, yeah, I am not my body, the I, that when you're referring to like the I, like I operate better. So I would say like the I, when I, that I is not my body. And so when you use the, and I it has absolutely body. nothing to do with your body. I, I'm not saying that it's only your body. You believe that you have a mind that operates without any connection to your body. Um, what well, operates in parallel with my body. I mean, it operates in your body. At no point does your mind operate without any relationship to your body. It's always connected and affected by your body. Well, I mean, you're saying this like declaratively. So, I mean, I, I realize we don't have to argue about like evolution, um, but uh, I mean, that's not the classical Torah, Kabbalistic uh, understanding. You know, Maimonides, uh, Chabad, most of the sages, uh, even modern Orthodox Judaism uh, take a dualistic uh, approach to it. I mean, we don't have to get into the argument. I was just noting that you said brain and uh, I would not have phrased it in that way. I mean, we, if, if you want, we could debate that, but I think it's a separate debate. So I was just going to note that and, and make other points on that. But if you, I mean, if you want, we could. No, uh, that's, that's fine. Please continue. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it probably is difference being that I'm a dualist in that sense that I think there is uh, that my mind operates parallel in a spiritual realm to my body. And so the, my brain is an element of the physical body being healthy. And then there's element of my mind being healthy that is independent of physical factors. And some of those that you mentioned, like in terms of being loved or, you know, company or psychological states, um, 
you separate, but yeah, I mean, definitely even to, you know, like as a dualist that the brain operates in correspondence with uh, the mind operates in correspondence with the body. Uh, Maimonides you know, clearly says, uh, you know, you need to have a healthy body to think properly and you know, being in pain or sickness detracts from the ability to, uh, to think, you know, like any form of uh, minor pain and injury, you know, like, uh, you know, God forbid a few weeks ago, I had a, a you know, minor nick on my finger, you know, just from like a knife. It took a few days to, to heal or, or, you know, I got a mosquito bite or something like that, uh, that will detract from the ability to think. Um, and I, I, I would, I would, I would basically agree with everything you said, except I, I would have, you know, used the expression mind as opposed to brain. Well, I might categorize um, them in different ways that the, there's the ones that are related to, uh, you know, like sunlight or, or cleanliness that are, that are physical in terms of health or a healthy body, um, a clean environment. And then there's ones that are in relation to your relations to other humans. And then there's ones that are relation to your own psychological state. And so some of those might vary. Like if I'm an introvert and you're an extrovert, that those cases of uh, when you operate best may be different uh, between uh, me and you or in terms of your relation with other people that uh, I might operate better in different circumstances than you. Um, but like, you know, definitely the ones you said about, you know, good health and uh, um, you, uh, clean, healthy body, uh, you know, hundred percent. So what are your favorite ways of altering your brain? Oh, and I said like, yeah, I don't, I use coffee occasionally, like basically just as a stimulant occasionally to give myself a little energy if I'm feeling a little tired and someone is like a laxative in the morning, you know, like coffee before I, you know, so I could completely evacuate in the morning to have like a little bit of cleanliness. Um, so I don't really use any um, stimulants in terms of uh, supplements or anything like that. I started taking some vitamin supplements like B12 or C or, or, or just very things because my mom had a bunch of them, but I don't necessarily connect that to uh, my mental states. Certainly stress of any form affects the mental ability. So you know, physical stress of being sick, of uh, being unclean, uh, like on Tish above, like, uh, you know, just like, you know, having not showered, of uh, feeling dirty, you know, I can't concentrate because I feel dirty. And right after I showered, my mind uh, was clear again. Um, being in a state of dispute, like we mentioned that uh, before we talked about, uh, you know, forgiving people before we go to sleep, starting fresh, not carrying any uh, grudges to other people, all these things weigh us down in our mental state and our ability to think and be free thinking. And I think there's also an element to wealth and possessions and responsibility that could be a good thing. Like I'm weighed down. My mind is never free because I have responsibilities like, you know, I'm running a business. Um, I have properties that I manage and uh, I have duties that are constantly on my mind. I'm never free of those duties um, because I'm responsible. And that might be masculine or feminine also, but I've been saying I'm a duty responsible person and therefore my mind is never free because it's always weighed down by those responsibilities. Um, it might be good to feel kind of carefree, but it's like, no, I'm, I'm a man. I have responsibilities and I'm never going to be like a carefree child again. Um, but certain like disputes or uh, you know, even 
worry in general. It's any, any form of detractor will take away from your mental area. If you want to put you in your terms of your brain, if you put in like physicality, blood flow, uh, full operational ability that, uh, you, you, when, when your energies are being, uh, rerouted towards other things, you're not going to be able to use it towards thought. And, uh, you know, like I like to just think about ideas and if I'm distracted, especially these complicated ideas, if they involve like math, science, symbolic forms, symbolic language, um, I'm not going to be able to make progress if I'm uh, distracted and any of those things you mentioned, like hundred percent is, is a distraction from, uh, you know, the ability to concentrate. And what happens to your brain? What do you notice happening to your brain when you live stream? Um, what well, depends. So like now when I, when I do week in review, I hardly have any viewers and I'm basically just reading articles and it's kind of like hyper-focused that, uh, you know, I'm putting myself out of them, researching these topics and it's a method to get me focused on a specific complicated topic. And because I've lost almost all my viewership or just a handful of viewers that uh, are interested in the same topic, it allows me to, the hyper-focus. Um, as opposed to like um, arguments in in various forms, generally they're draining and there's negative energy, there's uh, rejection, which is draining, um, you know, form if you're in front of a larger audience and you feel large amounts of rejection or even open hostility in the chat. Um, so, I mean, streaming, I, I'd say streaming is neutral, depends what and how you do it. So like, you know, probably the way you're streaming now just to a small audience to specific topics that interest you and to a small audience that finds that interesting, it probably actually helps your focus and your concentration as opposed to uh, your debates and hostile environments. Those are extremely draining. And, you know, the reality of, uh, I don't call it like negative energy, you know, just the uh, hostility is draining. And like, like you, you were talking about, uh, you know, you want to be around, you want to be where people appreciate you and love you. And, you know, sometimes you got to go out there and fight and uh, it's draining to do that. And what about when you went to that talk at the synagogue and people were apparently happy to see you? What effect, if any, did that have on your brain? I'm not actually sure people are, I mean, the rabbi came up and said, hi, that was about it. You know, because like, you know, came in, the lecture started, people were paying attention. Like I asked a few questions, you know, like, uh, um, but I, I really didn't speak to anybody other than the rabbi. I mean, I left right away after I probably could have spoken around. And I mean, a few people waved or said hi. Yeah, I mean, positive feedback is, is definitely good. But I mean, whenever you're in a crowd, you're going to get uh, the mixed, uh, the mixed reaction. Because, uh, you know, certainly, you know, there, there are people glad to see you and then there's people who probably aren't glad to see you. And, I forget where I, I, what I was listening to. I mean, it was academic. It was studies and papers on introversion versus extroversion and isolation. And, you know, even from an evolutionary perspective, the advantages of introversion as opposed to extroversion for the introverts are more focused on the dangers of human interaction as where extroverts more diminish the uh, potential dangers of human interaction. So, uh, you know, you don't know what's on other people's mind. And, and it said, like, if you're in a synagogue, there's a lot of people that say hi. There's a lot of people who don't say anything. 
And so like, I didn't have any negative reaction, but then it's just, well, how do you interpret the people who didn't say anything? And, uh, you know, maybe they're just busy, maybe, and, uh, and I don't know, if, I mean, we've talked about that in the past, but uh, you know, generally I take like the 50-50 approach where, you know, like people are people and, you know, there's group strategy into some, sometimes there's people look at their advantage or disadvantage in a social situation and you being there, um, you know, say like 50-50 where, where people could consider you being there a plus to their uh, social group interaction uh, as to others they consider it being a negative. And sometimes that negative has nothing to do with you. So if you're just an introvert and don't like crowds um, and you're saying, well, I'm going there for a purpose and I want to interact with these other people. So any other extra people that you're not going to interact with are just a potential liability or danger. So that could be what you're sensing is that other people, they're like, oh man, uh, I don't know how to or want to interact with this person and he's here and it creates a feeling of uh, danger and that could be minimally draining. And if you have, you're stronger in extroversion, you may, maybe that uh, doesn't bother you as much. So there's nothing I do consistently that, that uh, feels more stressful, that feels more demanding than live streaming. This is definitely the most draining, the most stressful thing in my life. And I, I also think it's the most dangerous thing that I, I do. Because at, at any moment, I could say, put together a few words that could forever ruin my life. Uh, do you think that I'm, I'm uh, coming here from a place of reality? Do you think I'm delusional about the stress and danger that I experience when I live stream? Any thoughts? Yeah, maybe it's like Charles Maskowitz, where like, if it's performative and you're like preaching to an audience that doesn't exist. So like now that I'm live streaming, I'm aware that hardly anybody's watching me. And I'm kind of just using it to put out my research. Like I'm, I'm doing something each week. I'm studying, I'm putting it out there. I'm reading some reading some papers, and I watch it back. And you know, like I realize that almost no one's going to watch it. So I don't really have like a fear that like I'm going to say something controversial. It's going to come back. I mean, it's more like why the hell are you bothering? Like no one watches you anyways. No one finds this interesting. And so you know more like because like I care about this stuff. And, uh, you know, I must forward my research and my study. Um, so maybe you're falling into the same Charles Moskowitz, like delusion where, you know, because you've been in front of large crowds before, or maybe there's a potential that someone's going to pop in and watch what you're saying that, uh, you're focusing on that. Like, you know, maybe this video is going to be the one that goes viral as opposed to like, uh, you know, the current reality of your streaming situation where you're just talking to a handful of people and it's unlikely any it's going to go viral or no one's really watching it or, uh, you, you know, so, so to say, like, you know, why, if you're only with your handful of friends, why are you performing like you're in front of a crowd? Okay. And here's something good I saw on uh, things to think about when you live stream. Always assume that five people will watch when you broadcast your best friend, your worst enemy, your boss, your mother and a lawyer. So I think that's excellent advice for, for live streamers. Always think about how your, your best friend will react to what you're saying, your worst enemy will react, your boss or your primary source of income, how that will be affected by what you're saying, your, your mother, meaning your family, and a lawyer. What would a lawyer do with what you're saying? What do you think about that advice? Well, because you're like in Hollywood, I think you're, or you know, at periods of time had been pretty public personality. I think you're looking at it in a different way. 
than I do. For example, like if I were streaming chess, like I know my mother wouldn't watch me stream chess. Like only someone who is interested in chess would watch me stream chess. And like, you know, if I'm doing hours streaming today where mostly I'm going to be like reading papers on theories of truth, like, no, like my mom, my, my, like my enemy, my friend, there's no way they would watch this stuff. And, you know, if you're doing performative type stuff where you're putting it out there for the public, maybe you're more accurate like that because you, you're looking, uh, you know, to grow an audience or to make a difference or to change minds as opposed to you accepting, like I'm talking about uh, niche concepts that are only going to be interested to a handful of people that, uh, that like, no, I mean, I, I know 100% my mom would never watch this. And uh, what do you think about the possibility that AI could destroy the world? We, we talked about that, I think. I mean, it's just a tool. I mean, if I, if I talked about it briefly with Ethan Ralph. Is that it's just a tool that could be used for good or bad. Um, I mean, it, you're going back to we were I was talking about the German idealism and the truth concept. Uh, I, I think there was a thing on Unz recently about, you know, kind of like Jews being scared of AI because AI operates in a more straight, logical, algorithmic pattern than, you know, say like a Judeo conception of truth. And there might be more worries about narrative. So I'm, I'm generally not a person who worries about narrative anyways. I think narratives are largely, you know, so to say all narratives are intrinsically false. So I, I think a lot of the worry about AI is worry about controlling the narrative, which I would say is a, a, a fallacy because, you know, the people who did think they were controlling the narrative, I would say like you never had the narrative under control in the first place. And then also, I think most of the things people are being scared of has already been the reality for 20 years. It just hasn't came up in the case where people would see it with like chat GPT, where things that uh, like in terms of like chess or day trading, like, you know, like I, I was day trading and I, my, my career was ended by machine learning algorithms already 15 years ago, where, you know, basically whatever I was doing, they programmed computers that did it quicker than me. And I was no longer able to make money and, uh, you know, chess programs, and uh, I, I think it was Charles Moskowitz or someone I was telling, maybe it was you I was telling, that uh, basically any form of expertise business is all these days analytics, where the computer, you feed information into the computer, and the computer does computations that humans couldn't do or would take humans way too long to do, and then the human makes decisions based off of the computations that computers have uh, done for us. And I think that's already been the case for 20 or 30 years. So, uh, I mean, there, you could potentially give dangers in, in cases, but, but I just see it as a tool. And, uh, I think I was maybe ahead of the curve because I was a chess player day traded or did certain things that the uh, computer's already been ahead of us for many years now where people are just finally seeing, um, you know, like maybe you didn't care when the computer beat Kasparov or something like that. And, uh, you know, but you didn't think that the computer was going to be able to write, write better than you. And now that the computer could write better than you, uh, you're worried. Yeah, I'm, I'm not worried about AI, but a lot of people I know are. I mean, I just notice a lot of people are just addicted to doom. So people who are addicted to doom. They think that, uh, you know, AI could doom us or global warming could doom us or immigration could doom us or the democrats are going to doom us or donald trump is going to do doom us 
Uh, do you have any thoughts on this very common human predisposition to believe that we are doomed? Yeah, definitely. But maybe I'll first ask you back on what I said about the personality type of the controlling of the narrative type, the people who believe that you can control the narrative or it's important to control the narrative are more likely to be scared of AI because they see the narrative slipping away from them. I've I've never thought about that. So I, I, um, I need to think about it more. Yeah, I mean, certainly like doom. And I mentioned that in terms like uh, your religion, kind of like your Adam Green critiques on Judaism and uh, you know, apocalypticism that uh, or, or you know, wokeism or these various things are a form of religion that people become atheist and they're still worried about uh, you know the end is near uh, you know whether it's environmentalism or uh, self-inflicted human tragedy um, I guess that's probably a derivative of solipsism where everybody feels fears death and realizes that my life will slip away and so the tendency is to project that on the whole world as, you know, the greater, you know, kind of uh, like we're talking about the Judeo concept of truth, where truth and the Jewish people are, are, are intricately connected as opposed to like a scientific where your know, truth is completely independent of humankind uh, that like, no, like uh, I will die, I will slip away and it's not going to have much of an effect at all on the world. And it'll in fact only have a minor effect even on my loved and, uh, you know, uh, people that I care about or know me best. And, uh, you know, so I think that's just a natural projection related to uh, the fear of death, this uh, doomism. And, but yeah, for AI to, uh, you know, be that it's just another thing for people to worry about. And AI is maybe different than, you know, like people worrying about uh, third world war or environmental control. I mean, environmental damage, global warming, because it's a feel of powerlessness and lack of control. And at least if you could, uh, you say, okay, like there's humans who have more power or human forces are causing the world to go into uh, a bad way that you could relate with that as opposed to the computer. It's unrelatable to this thing that has more powerful power than me is not similar to me. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to wrap up for today. Any final words, David? Yeah. I put, uh, I mean, I actually mentioned that to Ethan Ralph. Like, I fear God. I believe in God. So I believe that there, you know, like, I, I recognize that there's a force more powerful than, than I submit to. I think we've talked about that uh, multiple times over the years, uh, you know, submissions in, you know, like it's part of the 12 step uh, program, in fact, the submission. And so it's probably related to the fear of AI. It's, it's uh, uh, you know, people who have submission. I'm already submitted. You know, I already recognize there's a whole bunch of people have power over me and control to some extent. There's God, there's higher forces. So another thing that has more power over than me uh, isn't, uh, you know, isn't going to uh, add to it. So, uh, yeah, God bless. I appreciate you reaching out. Nice to chat. And, uh, you know, hopefully your fast went well. Tubav coming up uh, this week. So, you know, never too late. Uh, uh, both of us, you know, maybe God will bless us and we'll find the right woman and finally be able to build up families. So, uh, you know, God bless. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, David. Good to catch up. I want to finish off playing. This is Gavin Kamiya and Anthony McKinnis. It was old. <laughs> I don't know. No, I was Mom. probably I was probably 18 at the time. Okay. So it was just. She was like a 44. But, yeah, but she had had three kids. They and had some. It just, yeah, yeah. Mind seeing and that. bending over, it was kind I of love like, those. like, no. I love a good cock. I didn't want to. I, look, 
I didn't want to critique my mom's tits either. <laughs> so I wasn't looking going, are those good tits or bad tits? It didn't matter. I didn't want to see it. I did, and, and I was just horrified. That's a good name for, for a band or at least an album, Your Mom's Tits. Your Mom's Tits. <laughs> I remember a couple of times I saw a woman very close to me, her, her breasts, and I did not want to see that, the nipple, did not want to see that, or my friend's mother accidentally saw her naked, and I didn't want to see that either. <laughs> Don't forget the apostrophe S. Yes. Right, right, On the right. flyer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, I don't know. They were always, and I, I, I'm the same way. Like I, I gave my son shit the other day, nude, because that's an odd thing. He's, he's like on his little headset, like playing video games. It's two in the morning, and he goes to the kitchen to get something. He's like, "Yeah, I don't even think that the Mets have any chance." Like talking normal, and everyone in the house is asleep. It's so mm. fucking rude. So I come out and I go, "Hey, you're not the only person in the world." And he goes, "Jesus," because I'm nude, like a little kid. He's much taller than me. Oh. And this little hairy caveman, naked, like. <laughs> oh. And your balls are probably going up when you yell. Like, like you could, you could almost like a deaf person could read lips. You could read balls. Hey, don't you do that? Oh. I didn't like to sleep naked. I know a lot of people are into that, but it, ugh, I, I definitely want no. It's, it's not, not something I'm down with. Hey, there are other people in there. Like you could take the vibrations from the ball bag, and the dick was on my side too. It was like I would hope so. Oh, he's like, <laughs> flopping around. Yeah. Just, he's right, you know. It's like talking with your hands. Yeah, yeah, three just hands to talk with. <laughs> it's like, you need to shut up when it's two in the morning. <laughs> Terrible. No, Gavin. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Very open. I'm not ashamed of that. No. Uh, oh, man. Just imagine your, your son seeing you like Gavin McGinnis sticking a dildo up his anal aperture. Oh, he should be. <laughs> that just seems like such an odd thing. Because, you know, the child, the, the parent and the child, there's nothing that should ever be. Right. Nothing should sexualize the family. All right. So it's not a good idea. I think it's a really bad idea to go around naked with other family members. Even it's not sexual. It's just don't don't do it. Nude or sexual. Well, or, it's not sexual. But well, I, I, well, it, by nature, it kind of And I don't mean it like. Like like anybody wants that. But nudity is part of sexuality. Okay, when you're in a changing room at a pool or a water park, yeah. like, are you? do you go change in, like, the bathroom, or do you walk around with your dick hanging out? I show up in what I'm going to wear in the fucking pool. Really? And then I leave in it. I go home. You, go, you get in the car the in a wet bathing suit. Yes. Yeah, I minimize the amount of times that I'm naked in front of other people. So in high school, I used to just wear shorts under my pants. I take my pants off, wear my shorts for P.E., and then I didn't shower, you know, with all the other blokes. I just put my pants back on top of my shorts. It was like 45 minutes. I wasn't that sweaty. Yes, I do. The seat's wet anyway, or hot anyway. Uh, I'm not going to uh, – I never showered in school. I never set foot in a school shower. In I don't think I ever showered at school either. In my life. I, I went to gym class. I put my regular clothes back on, and I went home and dealt with it the, when I got home. I will brush my teeth at the gym in the nude, talk to someone with one foot up on the bench. <laughs> See, that's the guy. You're that guy. That guy. Naked guy. You're naked guy. I always thought it'd be funny if there was a fire in our building when I lived in Brooklyn, and I'd just come out nude and be talking to people like, you see that? I just came out of nowhere. Oh, my God. And there's a kid there, and I go, you scared, buddy? Yeah, it's pretty scary when you uh, a big fire. He's just staring at your I'm, cock. I'm squatted down. It's actually touching the oh, pavement. Oh, my God. <laughs> right in front of him. Yeah. You want to relate to him. Hey, buddy. We're all scared. Height. Right, right. We're all scared. It's a big deal. It's a fire. Uh, 
If you're so scared, why do you have a rod? <laughs> fucking, I've had nightmares like that where I'm naked walking around. And it's not even like I'm like, uh-oh, I'm naked. Like, I'm just walking around. Yeah, I've had most of my nightmares about being late for a test. I, I think I've had more nightmares about that than anything else. But I've also had nightmares about being naked or engaging in an act of self-pleasure and other people walking in on me. Around. Everyone else is clothed, and it's a normal situation, but for some reason, I'm just naked, and I'm, and I'm doing things. Like, if I have to fix something on a car, yeah, yeah. I'm doing it, and then people are walking around, and then I notice, and I go, why don't I put something on? This is silly. Why am I? I've lived your nightmare. When, when my family's away, and I'm alone in the house, I go, why get dressed? So I'll just, like, make breakfast, nude, and then... Yeah, yeah there was one time in my life when I had chronic fatigue syndrome. There was, there was one weekend, I think, where I just walked around naked. In in the house, but that's it. It's not really a state that uh, I like to be in. Yeah, I'll have to like fix something that requires oh, you know, going to the garage. So I'll put on shoes, and then I might have to put. On I'm fine with being naked in my shower. Yeah, no worries whatsoever. I just don't like being naked in front of other people. On a tool belt because I'm going to put up this this no, mirror. Will not this accept mirror. that. You so put on a tool, a tool belt. Tool belt with your naked with a drill. Converse. Is that what you call it? The drill. <laughs> <laughs> Just like putting up a vanity, like a fucking mirror in the bathroom, raising it an inch because they put it on. That's dangerous. I mean, you walk around with your cock out, and it could get caught or stuck, or all sorts of horrible things can happen to it. It's not good. You shouldn't <laughs> do that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen industrial <laughs> accidents, workplace accidents that aren't very pleasant. Have you ever had this dream where someone's fucking with you and you're like, all right, let's go. And then you're fighting him and you're on top of him, uh -huh. pounding him, and your punches are as painful as a baby's. Well, they're useless. And, oh, yeah, like, yeah. What's going on? You can't do anything. You can't run. I tried to run in dreams, and you find yourself, like, laying down, pulling yourself yeah, in your yeah, arms. Yeah, yeah, I just can't fucking run. I need to run. And then that, yeah, when you're hitting someone, and a gun is the worst thing to have in a dream. They're useless. I've never had one in a dream, I, I don't I, think. I take, if it's somebody that I need to shoot, you squeeze in the trigger, and it's like it won't get to that final click and pull. Uh. And then if it does, you're, you're so fucked up like this, you miss. Or the bullet literally just goes, tink, and it hits him but bounces off. What the fuck is I that? don't know. I don't know. It's my dream. Can I just knock the guy out, yeah, please? Yeah. How about that? You wake up kind of insecure for a millisecond going, yeah. my punches are baby punches. <laughs> and maybe yeah, I can never hurt anybody. Maybe I'll never be able to hurt anybody <laughs> with my... Yeah, everybody hurts. Everybody's incredibly vulnerable. That's it. Bye-bye.